Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Moralia Python Radio. And tonight we have our first ever genetic roundtable. And uh, I don't know about you, Owen, but uh, going by the name that you are on the uh, on the, the soundboard... Uh, <laughs> The I, like to, I, I like to give you I like to uh for those of you who don't know, I have to type in my name to the soundboard every time I call in. So I like to put rant I don't ever like to put my name, I like to pick random shit so that Eric knows it's me. And and this one is the only non expert that's on the program today. So this way he knows it's me and not any of the other people that we're gonna be talking to. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I fit in the category of non-expert pretty hard non-expert so you know ditto yeah 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 exactly you know it's i well how are we doing this is that whatever but um yeah this is uh it's gonna be an interesting show and uh one of those shows every once in a while we have a show coming that um uh comes up and we're like well this is gonna be one that could potentially set some debate further on or set a message board on fire or, you know, hopefully get some things kind of hammered out. And this is probably one I would definitely peg for that. So, yeah, there's going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about tons of, uh, different things related to genetics and, you know, I'm getting an echo from you. Um, it, do you hear that? Right. No, no, uh, oh, did you? What happened to you? <laughs> I muted my. I muted myself. You said you're getting an echo, so I figured it just. Oh. Ah, whatever. Very good. <laughs> uh, clearly, this has gone off the rails quick. It's, it's um, already gone. I, we, I quit. Uh, no, um, no, we have uh, we have a. Uh, I don't know. It's like an all star team in the uh, in the herb hobby. We have uh, Travis Wyman. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, Nick Mutton, Justin Julander. Uh, ben uh, Morrill and uh, Warren Booth. So, holy shit, man. That's like... Uh... <laughs> I, it, it's like I said, we're the non-experts. You know, all I do is breed yeah. snakes in a box. I mean, that's that's it. So, wow. Some snakes in a box. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. So speaking of breeding snakes in a box, how's how's the babies coming along? The babies are, uh, you know, some of them are being little jerks. We were talking about it before the show started that I got some of them to eat their first couple meals. And then now they're turning their noses up at me. Uh, um, I did get the last of my corn snakes to eat um, just by giving them a little bit of gecko scent on their pinkies. Uh, I got one of the brand new Dominican ran mountain bone babies to eat uh frozen thawed pinky with a little bit of gecko scent off it on it fresh off the bat. So I maybe won't lose my mind with this litter. Maybe. So uh yeah. That's cool. Yeah, babies and then, me are going good. And then I didn't oh, tell you God. guys because I didn't want to hear about it, was um I actually had a red tail male on loan. And uh, my friend's female dropped like 30-something slugs. Like, she slugged out, but I was almost drowning in more baby boas, which I would have had to deal with that. So I'm kind of glad that didn't work out. So, 
more baby boas. <laughs> I don't want to hear most, about it. <laughs> most people would love the fact that they produce Dominican red mountain boas, but not you, I, Owen. I hate, I hate all three of them. <laughs> You're like, no. Nah. I glare at even their though, tubs, and I'm like, you bastards. So, even when you we know. went to Tinley and you sold them out right away, like people came knocking down your table to get these Dominican Red Mountain Bows, and you're like, take them! Get them out! I don't, I don't, know, I don't, know, how I, I don't know how I sold them. I'm like, take these goddamn pieces of crap. Like, I, I was not saying nice things about them when people were buying them, so I don't know Ooh. how that happened. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. Everything's going pretty good for me, you know. Uh, no, uh, just the deciding what's going to stay and what's going is really my only struggle. Well, <laughs> you know, is the pile is the pile for what's staying so much bigger than the pile for what's going? Because it's usually how it goes. Oh hell no! It's like no, no, no two no. out of every twelve is going. I mean, you know. No, I'd say twelve out of every two is going. You know, there you it's go. More, yeah, it's more along those lines, but. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, you know, with carpets, they change as they each shed. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. just trying to uh, nail down, you know, what what to look for, uh, especially with uh, poplin carpet pythons. Notice I said poplin carpet pythons. I did. It's because, it's because, <laughs> it's because they're here, isn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. Um, if, it were, if it were just me, you might have slipped. But anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, I get that because I haven't even picked my holdbacks from 2018 left because I'm not really, I, I don't really know what to do. I mean, and especially because I have a lot of um, exanic animals, like uh, het exanic animals. So I've been kind of dodgy about picking as well as listing for sale. So I'm kind of hoping that by the end of this episode, I kind of have a better grasp of what the hell we're doing here. So, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple things I saw, uh, out in the world of, uh, social media. One, the hypo tiger. Holy I was so hell, hoping man. you were going to talk about that. I was so hoping Holy you were going to talk about that. Please tell me to go, you bought Paul. it. It's on its way. Is it on its no. way? Tell me you bought it. No. Just send me a I, I message <laughs> telling me you bought it. Like, I don't just, just do it. <laughs> that one's for sale. Imagine the ones that aren't for Here. sale. God, <laughs> you know what I mean? I know. So uh, yeah, we're talking about Paul Harris from UK Pythons, his uh, hypo tiger that he posted up. Holy shit, man! Wow, everything I wanted. It's um, yeah, I, I don't. It's a coastal. It's a hypo. It's got stripes. I'm sold, but I'm also <laughs> poor, so I can't. <laughs> Well, maybe one day when you produce rough scales, we can trade. <laughs> by, the time, by the time that happens, maybe I'll be breeding uh, hypo tigers. But uh, I'm not yeah, sure that if was... that was a jab at me or not. If it no, was, no, 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 that was mean. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that was not a jab. Although, yes, now that I just heard. Although, yes, that was. Head, <laughs> now that you mentioned. Yeah. Well, then, yeah, it's a little poke. <laughs> by the way. I, Wait a minute. Yeah. I had to ask. Are you getting like poked like crazy on Facebook Messenger? I blocked that person. I blocked that person. I blocked that person. There was one person who kept like poking me on Facebook. About the third time it happened, I just flat out blocked that person. So it's like if it's, it's almost like the poke is going to make you answer it quicker. <laughs> no, no, 
No. Like, hey, you. What? Hey, you. Yeah. I asked you a question. Hey, you. <laughs> like, I didn't even get asked a question. I just started getting poked by this one random person I friended on Facebook. Yeah. And I'm like, that's enough. I only need three notifications from you within an hour before I'm like, you need to go away. So, yeah. And, of course, I'm sure Nick will maybe touch on it a bit tonight, but the uh, 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 hypo stonewashed bread lie. Holy yeah. hell, dude. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. That's pretty. <laughs> yes. Pretty. <laughs> Holy I, shit. It's it's pretty. Yeah. yeah. Talk about red. Watch out, short tail people. <laughs> it's it, Well, you know, I mean, we have longer snakes, so it's going to be prettier and more red and longer. So, I mean, I don't. Yeah, definitely watch out, short tail people. So. Yeah, true story. Yeah, that was that was really sharp. But uh, like I said, I'm sure Nick will hit on that tonight at some point. Cool. Um, but uh, we've got a long list of stuff to talk about. I just even got a couple questions. The hell, man! This is going to be crazy. What? Um, <laughs> yeah, people are sending questions, but you know, it is what it is. Maybe we'll squeeze wait, wait them in. Put, wait to slide that in underneath, like you know, final hour, Christ. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's get this going. We're going to bring, uh, we're going to start with Travis. Hey, Travis, this was kind of Travis's idea, by the way, which, uh, Oh, it's him to blame for this. Okay. (laughs) What's up, man? Blame me. (laughs) I'm doing well. How you doing, gentlemen? (laughs) Pretty good. We're doing fine. Yeah. So how do we want to jump into this? Are we just going to go straight in or. Yeah. However you guys would like to go into it. I mean. I deep in, you know, deep I into the pool. Along the topics that we had, and we can hit them however you want to hit them. Let's just do it. Uh, Owen, you got the sheet. You know, I got the sheet. We'll just go down that list that I sent you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm, I, I have the list open because I'm a good co-host. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> shut up. Shut up. All right. Um. <laughs> Travis, I, I, according to my sheet that I had open the entire time, um, you are going to talk to us about uh, Kodam? Yes. All right. All right. So Kodam, our, our wonderful nemesis that we have in our hobby that <laughs> <laughs> so many of us so hate. Yeah. As, as, yeah. as Warren has said many times, it just needs to die. So let's see if we can... <laughs> Let's see if we can drive a stake through this thing's heart tonight. <laughs> okay. We're killing it. Go ahead. I'm all right with it. Go knock yourself out. Okay. So basically the first thing that we need to do is forget everything that you think you remember from your high school biology course. Done. <laughs> <laughs> done and done. Easy. All right. Well, there we go. Um, so CODOM is not a pattern of genetic inheritance. Okay. Now I'll let that sink in, and then I'll repeat myself to make sure that we really understand. This is not a type of inheritance. What codominance is, um, it's a description for a relationship between two alleles. So the easiest way to talk about this, because in the herp world, we don't have any codom examples, um, but it's to look at human blood types. So in human blood types, there are three alleles. There's the A, the B, and the O. Now, the O allele is, is inherited in a recessive manner. So if mm-hmm. you're type O blood, then your genotype has to be OO. 
the A allele is inherited in a dominant type of manner. So if you have type A blood, your genes can be either AA or AO. Um, And then in the same way, the B allele is a dominant type gene. So if your B blood, your B genotype is BB or BO. Um, So then that leaves, well, what about the fourth blood type, which is AB? So the real simple answer is you inherit one copy of the A allele from one parent and one copy of the B allele from the other parent. And each of those alleles are inherited in a basic dominant manner. And because each allele is expressed fully, then you're seeing both traits. So basically they're expressed in what is a a cooperative type manner. And because they're cooperative, that's basically the co in dominant. They're both expressed together. So it's the relationship between the two that defines them as co-dominant, not the inheritance, because their inheritance is just basic dominant type you know, Mendelian genetics. Okay. Um, okay. So as an analogy that kind of makes it easier to understand the relationship type thing, I'm a parent. My wife is a parent. Okay. Together we co-parent. We raise our kids together. Uh-huh. But just because I'm a parent and because I co-parent with my wife doesn't mean I'm always a co-parent, you know, Warren is a parent. Ben is a parent. Nick is a parent. Just because they're also parents doesn't mean that Warren and I are co-parents because Warren and I do not have a relationship together when it comes to parenting. Okay. So it only works in certain, with, with certain things and only your parenting only works, your co-parenting only works with your wife. Okay. Yes. And the same way the, co-dominance only works when you're dealing with two genes that work together with one another. Okay. So when we're talking about something like when, 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 when people say co-dom, the first thing that comes to my mind is Jaguar. So Jaguar is not a co-dom because it's not working with anything. It's <laughs> just there. <laughs> so kind of like that yeah. or... I'm well, kind of on the right. Nah. Kind of a not. Um, Jaguar right. is incomplete dominant. So everything right. in the hobby that people call codom is incomplete. Is dominant. really incomplete dominant, and they're right. calling it codominant because that goes back to what I said at the very beginning here of forget everything you think you remember learning in high school, <laughs> because what they taught you in high school was just a horrible, horrible example. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So. And was that mainly because it was just, I guess, the thinking at the time? Or was it just like too many of us got it wrong and just kind of kept rolling with it? Uh, it's because too many of us in the hobby got it wrong and just started rolling with it. Um, got it. <laughs> All right. So are there any reptilian examples of codominant that we can kind of throw something at to kind of get an idea there's nothing in the hobby that I can think of. Um, Holy crap. <laughs> well, <laughs> most of the things where, I mean, just across all of genetics, most of the time where we see a codominant type of situation, it's, it's almost more on the molecular level. So with, you know, blood type, 
that's on a molecular level of what's being expressed on the blood cells. Now, there's a way to visualize it through certain tests, but it's because the blood cells are producing two separate proteins equally. Um, and you see that in a lot of different, you know, cellular levels. So I'm, I would guess that on the cellular level, there are probably are co-dominant things going on with snakes and lizards and frogs and toads and turtles. It's just we don't really see them because who's going to do a blood test on a turtle to find out what its blood type is or what its, you know, enzymatic reactivity is to certain things. Um, the closest we have in any type of phenotype in the hobby that I could shoot out is in ball pythons. Um, mm -hmm. It's the spider gene and the blackhead gene. And when they are alleles of one another, and when they're expressed, basically the spider gene turns up high expression of the gold patterning on ball pythons, and the blackhead gene reduces that expression. And when you combine them, you basically get what looks like a wild-type looking ball python because the mutations are operating in equal and opposite manners. So they're kind of canceling each other out. Oh. Now, the reason that doesn't work as a perfect analogy is because blackhead is an incomplete dominant allele because when you have two copies of it, you get the super blackhead, which looks distinctly different than the blackhead. And spider right. is also an incomplete dominant trait. You have the single gene copy, which is the spider, and then the super spider, which is the dead snake. You know, the, the same way one, a yeah. super jaguar is a dead snake. Okay. So that's why it doesn't hold as a perfect analogy because the inheritance pattern of both of those alleles is incomplete dominant. Okay. All right. Well, so even even if people start talking about combinations of, um, you know, different genes like Jaguar and stuff like that, that's still not a co-dominant. That's just... And in uh, that's just the the genes working together, right? Okay. All right. Very cool. So um, let's. Uh, I think I'm trying to find the Eric. I think is the next topic. Is there anything else you wanted to jump or throw out there for that we need to know about codominance going forward uh, for the rest of the night here? No, just you know, the hobby needs to let it die as Warren is very <laughs> fond of saying it just needs to die. <laughs> All right. Well, I, 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 I will agree, but um, we'll see what's going on. Um, Eric, you didn't run off to get a beer. Did you? I did. Um, you Damn know, it. I, had take, I, had to, I had to take some of the edge off here. I'm, <laughs> Chill, but, uh, you got it. Fine. So, oh, and our job here tonight is once yep. we get this all straight, to never ah. refer to the wrong name ever again. Codominant must be erased from your. <laughs> You're putting so much pressure on me. I called them IJs <laughs> last week, so I don't know oh, what the hell you're trying to do here. And I, right. I'll do my best, but, you know, that's all I can promise you. So, well, you know. <laughs> Next, we're going to get Nick, but, you know, it, it's so funny how we, like, hold on to something, and then, like, a, a scientist will tell you, or, you know, and a geneticist, argue. Or, and they tell you, <laughs> no, you're completely wrong, and they still continue to say, uh, you know, the wrong thing, so <laughs> we well, got our work cut out for us there, buddy. 
I know I'm wrong. I'm just trying my best to not do it. But, you know, I don't think that these guys are like that. I know more than them. Jesus Christ. But yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Ne- next up, we're going to talk to, well, this is, so, I mean, we've hit on this before, but um, Let's Nick is going to explain to, to us Exanic Gene all about it. And, you know, he wants to know, Owen wants to know how he's going to sell his baby. <laughs> That's all he cares yeah, about. That's all I care about. <laughs> tell, me, tell me what to put to not piss people off. So, right. Uh, what is the yeah, curve? So I, I, I imagine that's a problem you have frequently, Owen. Oh, yeah, well, that's all the time. <laughs> I mean, I can't avoid it. I'm just I'm trying to lessen it. That's all. Yeah, so. with that. uh, yeah this is uh, one of those topics that's caused a bit of a controversy, and it's the same thing you just mentioned where, for some reason, people – they get an idea in their head and they're just so reluctant to change it that they will ignore copious amounts of proof and evidence to, to the contrary. And I think what I think that, I mean, this ties in with the thinking the term codom uh, in that, you know, it, it's okay to be wrong. Uh, it's okay to be ignorant and not know things, but if someone presents you with the evidence, the proof and, it's like, why cling to something you know to be wrong? And using the correct terminology for whatever it is, I mean, if you know it to be incorrect, then you change it and you get on the right page with it. And to endlessly keep repeating something that's incorrect doesn't make it true. I mean, you can say IJ all you want doesn't make it an accurate description. You know, you can say codominant all you want. It doesn't make it. Just Just because something is used, in the hobby so ubiquitously it doesn't mean that it's correct or I mean I just think we should all strive to you know and this and it, we live in an age where there's kind of an anti-science sort of thing going on and I think it's important to be scientifically literate and use the right term it matters and whether that's you know thinking codom or, or in this case with the example thing just accepting that this is not recessive and I think this goes back to the the problem is that people have made this sort of nonsensical association that they can't get out of their head, that the term heterozygous, i.e. a het, only refers to recessive stuff. Right. And that's just utter nonsense. I mean, it's just, if everyone would just refer to all of these things as heterozygous or homozygous, nothing else would matter, because that's really all that matters. You got one copy, you got two copies, it's really not any more complicated than that. Uh, So, you know, using the term heterozygous or het exanthic is still absolutely correct um, in the same way that you could quite legitimately refer to a zebra jungle as het for patternless or a jag as het for dead because that's what it is. <laughs> it's, it's het for dead. It is, uh, yeah. <laughs> so if you, well, there's kind of a debate. People are trying to like call things like, you know, heterozygous exanthics like exanthics and super exanthics, but that's really... I mean, let's face it, we all use this term super, but that's not a scientific term. That's just a made-up hobby term that really has right. no weight behind it and can be a little misleading. I mean, but heterozygous and homozygous will never steer you wrong. I mean, a heterozygous example is exactly that. Whether or not you can visually discern a heterozygote from a, a wild type is a whole other matter. It's still just a heterozygous animal. And it's mm-hmm. you know abundantly clear that you can tell uh, that it is visually discernible. I think with the example thing, where it throws people is that 
because there's, I mean, this is all getting very carpet specific. And I know the kind of appeal of this show and people listening to this are from all stripes and you know, far reaching beyond uh, just the kind of carpet Python sector of the hobby. But uh, yeah, it, it, uh, this is an endless source of frustration to me, I guess. I'm, I'm getting all flustered here. <laughs> I feel like I've been fighting a very, lo- waging a very lonely battle for a very long time. And it's finally people are starting to see this. Uh, and one thing, you know, I can't, you have two factions in the carpet hobby. There are the kind of the purest sort of don't mix up your species and subspecies people like me. And then there's the throw it all together and mix it all up uh, faction of the hobby. And this mm-hmm. isn't a, a slam against one or the other. It's just that the results and the opinions uh, on the, you know, whether or not to accept that Exanthic is incomplete dominant fall almost exactly in line with the hybrid versus purist mentality. And, the re- and there's a very specific reason for that. The, the people, the holdouts don't, I don't know if, it's, if I'm not being you know, articulating well, it's possible it's that, or, or if it's just stubbornness. Um, if you breed pure coastals, um, mm-hmm. The range of variability is, I mean, there's a range of variability in all these things. The range of variability in this case we're talking about is the amount of yellow pigment in a given animal. Carpets are wildly variable. Carpets, or coastal carpets, the most variable. So there is a variation in the amount of, uh, of yellow pigment that would normally be present. Uh, and, but it's not that wide as compared to like hybrid carpets. When you start mixing, you know, jungle carpet blood or, I'll just take sarcastic air quotes, IJ blood, uh, into the mix, you're infusing your mixed blood snakes with it. You're radically altering the amount of baseline yellow pigment that would be. That very range of variability goes off the chart at that point. Right. And so if you have a relatively small reduction, let's just say in a hypothetical, but being heterozygous, for example, reduces your yellow pigment by 25%. If you have a relatively tight range of variation within yellow pigment, you'll be able to pick that out fairly consistently, and it'll be fairly obvious. If you have basically tripled the amount of yellow that potentially could be in an animal, and then you reduce it, I mean, if you, and then you reduce that by 25%, it becomes entirely unnoticeable because, you know, not all the babies will get, you're not adding a predictable amount of additional yellow via hybridization. You're adding a wildly variable amount of yellow. So that right. 25% gets very quickly will get lost in that because you don't have that nice, tidy baseline to compare it to. So it gets in hybrid cars, it's, it's exponentially more difficult. There are, I've seen examples where it's pretty clear, but I've seen some where it's not. But if you're going to, you're, you're going to ramp, you're going to you ramp the yellow up, you know, through the moon and then you, then you reduce it a little, you're not going to notice that. Not nearly right. to the extent that you see in a, in normal coastal. So the people that breed pure coastal examples, they'll all tell you, oh, it's obvious as the nose in your face. But when you get into the, the people that are pulled out most, it seems like they're the people who steer their collections are overwhelmingly steered towards morph combinations, and that generally means hybridization. And they're not seeing it, but it's not because it's not there. It's because their particular breedings and the choices that they're making as far as that goes are making are obscuring what is ob- otherwise an obvious sort of thing. And I, it, it seems really. It's not. It's not that complicated, I guess. Uh, yeah, in my estimation, I, but the, I'll say that really? I have two pairings for Exanic this year. One is an Exanic to a tiger. The other one is an Exanic to a caramel, and it's easier to. Pro- I have 
my theories on the Exanic uh, and the Tigers. I, I, I have no idea what's going on with the Caramels. So I guess it'd be easier when you have less stuff in the pot there. Uh, well, I mean, Caramels have obviously a, a pretty significant increase in yellow pigments anyway, mm-hmm. particularly later in life. And you're knocking that back. So you can't really expect a caramel that's heterozygous exanthic to look like a caramel that's not heterozygous exanthic <laughs> on average. I mean, there will always be right. exceptions to everything, but they're generally going to trend lower. And that particularly that later in life when they get three feet long, they get kind of that bump and kind of that golden color wash yeah. that they get. That tends to fall relatively flat. I've got a few caramel jag head exanthic adults that are quite nice, but the single gene just Caramel, heterozygous exanthic tend to, just like you would expect. The only thing surprising is when you look at them as babies, they look pretty good. They're pretty red. Yeah. But yeah. it just doesn't, it, but it doesn't, yeah, they look better than you would expect. But the problem <laughs> with that is, is like, you're looking at a whole bunch of them, they're all heterozygous exanthic. You don't have anything to compare it to. You can't really know what would it have looked like if it wasn't heterozygous exanthic, because all of his clutch mates are also heterozygous exanthic. So, Right. Looking at a relatively consistent thing, um, but uh, yeah, I, I've noticed that uh, when you get to the, I'm at the other end of that spectrum now, where I'm, you know, I'm producing exanthic, homozygous exanthic, uh, caramel stuff, and it's some of those can be quite difficult to find the plain find the caramel. You get a lot of kind of is it or isn't it, and then you Not get others great. that are, well. Homozygous in the exanthic mutation is pretty uniform. It's pretty, you know, when you see it, it's pretty obvious. Mm. It doesn't vary that much. Uh, and it, you, you don't see that much variation in expression. Uh, caramel, on the other hand, is all over the map. Some look really extreme. Some look like, meh. You know? yeah. <laughs> and when you, get, when you get an obvious homozygous exanthic that is a, a caramel, a really good, what would have probably been a very brightly colored caramel, it's really obvious because it's like a weird bluish, bluish gray and pink snake with blue eyes. If you get right. one that was going to be a more subdued caramel, it gets kind of a little harder to discern. And I've, I've got four of these things sitting here. I don't even know what to do with. Like I'm 99 percent sure that's what they are. But I've got another group that you know are extremely obvious what they are, and I'm like I don't really want to. I don't know what to do with them. So it's not an unknown phenomenon breeding for mutations in any reptile that sometimes you get enough noise going on with morph-wise that it can sometimes be difficult to interpret what you're looking at. Yeah. Uh, so would you say that the eyes are pretty much what you would look for to determining an exanic or a, a, a het okay. exanic? Here's a, here is a good, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, what yeah. I have found and I have produced a boatload of all of this stuff it's the eye color for homozygous exanthics is pretty well diagnostic with one little caveat. You can produce heterozygous exanthics that look just as exanthic as a homozygous exanthic. Uh-huh. But the homozygous exanthics will have like a pale bluish gray eye. And the heterozygous will have a fairly normal looking eye. You will never produce a heterozygous animal that has the eyes. The eyes will tell you sometimes that's the only thing that will tell you. It's so it's so incomplete dominant that the heterozygous exanthic animals are much closer in phenotype to the homozygous exanthic than they are to a wild type. They're closer to being a you know one to that end than they are to being a wild type. It's 
the heart when you breed a heterozygous exanthic pair together and you make you know possible het and homozygous animals, the easiest thing in the world is telling the possible het is telling which ones are heterozygous exanthic from the normals because the normals stick out like a sore thumb. It's telling a heterozygous animal from a homozygous animal, and the eye color will do that. Except, and here's the one caveat, when you, I mean, obviously people mix jaguar into literally everything on with a cloaca at this point has had jaguar mixed into it. So a lot of exanthic coastal stuff has the jaguar gene floating around in there. Can make, eye color is not diagnostic if it's a jag. If you make an exanthic jag, a homozygous exanthic jag, it will have blue eyes. And most of the time, a, jag, a jaguar that is heterozygous exanthic will not have the blue eyes, but once in a while they will. I've made several where, you know, it couldn't possibly be a homozygous, and yet it's got the blue eyes. And looks every bit, I mean, so you could get in trouble with, you know, jaguars that are heterozygous exanthic uh, looking and could easily pass for an exanthic jaguar, uh, even down to eye color. And unfortunately, that's a, a reality that has, I mean, we've all seen some quote-unquote uh, exantics, you know, being sold here and there that you kind of seriously question if that's what it was, if it was a misidentified head. Um, so I tend to be on the on the camp that rounds things down. If I'm not 100% sure what it is, I will yeah. sell it as what I can guarantee it is, and that means that I give a lot of stuff away. Uh, right. When I made possible heads. I mean, when I made possible het exantics uh, those first few years, and I wasn't quite as astute at dividing what was what, I know I sold at least three visual homozygous exantics as possible het. Uh, because it was just, it was better that than, I mean, from a business perspective, not that this is supposed to be a show about business, but it's far better to, if you sell somebody a, a possible hat that turns out to be a homozygous animal, you've got a buddy for life. If you sell them a homozygous animal that turns out to be a hat or a normal, <laughs> then you've got a much more difficult problem to solve. So it's just better to err on the side of giving something away than than the possibility of shorting somebody. But uh, yeah, that's and the only other thing about Exantic before it's time to I have a, a pretty ambitious schedule of things to discuss that before moving on is that it's not really fully Exantic either. Basically, like, everything anybody ever told you about exanthic carpets is not true. Like, literally none of it is true. Um, okay. If they were really exanthic, they would have, it would, by definition, there would be no yellow pigment. But if you've ever seen a snow carpet, it seems like a lot of yellow pigment, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it's a, and a, or a snowball or a snow, a snow anything. Because no yeah. snow anything is ever, because all these are the same, essentially the same thing. They never remove 100% of the, that yellow pigment. It's, it's one of those where you probably get like a 25-30% decrease in the heterozygous form and like an 85% decrease in homozygous form, but there's still a little bit left over. It's not obvious in like a pure coastal authority you kind of had a very low baseline of yellow anyway, and they're fairly gray to begin with. But if you make a mixed blood animal, uh, obviously you've ramped up the amount of yellow when you mix an albino that hails from the Darwin carpet subspecies mixed in. You've increased when you increase the amount of yellow pigment in that baseline, then you remove eighty percent of it. That fifteen percent that's left over, or whatever, is significantly more. And when you strip away all melanin, it becomes really obvious. It's also why 
pure coastal exantics will always look better than mixed exantics. And there will be people who will argue that one to the day I die. I'm quite sure I'll take some heat for that. But because <laughs> it, you know it doesn't remo- when you know that the mutation is not going to remove 100% of the yellow pigment, adding other subspecies into the mix that have an increase in yellow pigment is you're just that little bit that's left over that the mutation doesn't remove, you're increasing that. Thus, you're making an exantic is going to brown out when you should, you know, or not should necessarily is the wrong term, but the further away from you that you get, the lower you can reduce the baseline yellow to begin with, the smaller that remainder will be, and ultimately the more exantic looking your exantics will be as adults. It works easily if you've got, you know, coastal carpets, which tend to be pretty gray snakes, the U.S. lines and stuff anyway. But if you're mixing all this other stuff in, you're, it doesn't make a lot of sense to add something, add a bunch of something in if you're also simultaneously trying to remove it. It just right. it's, it's nonsensical. Uh, I mean, I get it if you wanted to make an exantic zebra or something, you really have no choice. But an exantic zebra that is 75% coastal blood and 25% jungle will likely look substantially better than an exantic zebra that's 75% jungle and only 25% coastal. You'd want to minimize those percentages because you're trying to selectively read away a bunch of the yellow and then let the, the mutation itself knock out and do its part. But it says it doesn't do all of it. That's that's the last bit. Probably time to move on from exantic stuff. we got a lot of stuff to get to. Yeah, yeah gotcha. uh, I think it is. <clears throat> I think Travis wanted to jump in there real quick before we move on to uh, another topic. Sure. Travis? Yeah. 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 Um, well, just going with what Nick was saying about how, you know, everything we've heard about azanthic is wrong and there's still yellow pigment left in. Um, something else I've noticed within the other dimensions of the hobby, um, in not with carpets, but with, you know, like ball pythons, blackheads, some of the other species, there are multiple types of azanthism and they're not compatible with one another. And for some reason, people take that to mean that there is no way you can combine these traits. So, you know, that's not true. You could have a double visual azanthic animal, like in blackheads. There are two separate lines of azanthism. So you could have a double azanthic blackhead, but I cannot count the number of times I've gotten in arguments with people where, They say that because the two lines aren't compatible, that also means that you can't have both of them in the same animal at the same time. So that's not a true statement. You can certainly have double visual azanthic animals. Now, what they would look like, anybody's guess, but I'm sure Nick would probably agree you're going to have an animal that is significantly less yellow in that regard. Now you might not see it in just a baseline animal, but if you had like a double azanthic snow, that slightly yellow snow now becomes more white. I mean, Travis, maybe you can answer this question for me and maybe I'm just my perception of these things are wrong. Cause I'm not really like a hundred percent ball Python guy, but I remember like back when we're working with base genes and stuff, why did the pastel exanic, pop more than the you know like the regular exanic so if you're like nick was saying you're taking out the yellow right but with that one it seems like you're adding yellow but yet am i correct in that or um, am i totally off base with that 
<laughs> yes and no. Um, okay. <laughs> what you are doing with that. <laughs> um, so what pastel is doing is mm-hmm. it's not so much adding yellow as it's pulling some of the base melanin that's, you know, so on ah. the bar python, that gold spot is yellow and melan- a layer of melanin mixed in with it. If you okay. pull some of that melanin away, that base yellow comes out. So that base yellow is basically, you know, the yellow in a pastel and a really good, nice, crisp, clean pastel mm-hmm. when it hatches, that yellow almost looks the same as the yellow that you would see in an albino. Not quite, but almost. Okay. So the azanthism is pulling the black melanin pigment out. So then when you hit that with azanthism, you're pulling the yellow away, and all you're left with is sort of a a clean-looking okay. gray, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's it's more or less it's more like um I'm trying to think of another gene like kind of like what Desert Ghost does to it it kind of cleans up that like pulls a layer out so to speak and makes it appear cleaner right Yeah um okay the Desert Ghost the fire a lot of the genes that they call enhancer genes in the ball python will do similar type of things it's distribution of the pigments mostly you're dealing with distribution of the melanin. Gotcha. See, I never thought about the melanin part of it. All right. (laughs) That's why you're the expert. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, Okay. Anything else you want to hit on Travis before we move on to the next topic? Nope. I'm good. No, we're good. All right. Okay, cool. All right. Next up, Ben, uh, is going to clarify. Sorry, Owen, oh, I stepped ex- on your. Clarify <laughs> slash explain het, which is short for heterozygous. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, Ben. You okay? Yes, sir. Yeah, we got you. Very good. Um, so I liked Travis's idea of, you know, everybody just clear your mind, just forget anything you've heard about het, and just think het equals one copy. That's all that you need to know to begin the foundation of understanding. <laughs> and so if somebody <laughs> tells you it's heterozygous or something, like it's cystic fibrosis. If someone has cystic fibrosis, that problem's caused because, you know, they're heterozygous or homozygous for just a single base change. It can be, it's supposed to be a T, but it changes to an A. And so we as geneticists would talk about that as being het for A at base pair 332 or whatever. So all all that thing is you have one copy. And so if you have a Jaguar, it has one copy of Jag if it's alive and it looks like, you know, what we call a Jaguar. If it has two copies, then it's, you know, dead in the egg or shortly thereafter. And that's, that's really what it boils down to. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's recessive, it doesn't matter if it's incomplete dominant, doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters whether something can be heterozygous or homozygous. It, it's, heterozygous just means one. <laughs> then actually what it really means is the, the two copies that you have are different. That's why it's hetero. 
is the two copies because you're always going to get one from your mom, one from your dad. And so what heterozygous means is that the two are different. And when we're talking about it as, you know, morph breeders, we're usually would be referring to a mutation that causes color and or pattern changes. And so if I say referring, it's heterozygous for, you know, jaguar, I'm saying it has one copy of that mutation it makes it jaguar. And it really doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. <laughs> okay. Now, now, why did you think heterozygous got so like attached to recessive genes, like as something that we only really talk about when we're talking about a recessive trait? I think that it's because most people that are breeding the only time they've really talked about heterozygous homozygous is when they're talking about breeding animals. And it's really, you know, just those, you know, that's really the only term people, the only time people use it is when they're talking about recessive traits and when they're selling them as a het. If you have a jag, it would be awkward in herpeticulture to say, I have a het jag. Uh, It's just awkward because of what people are used to. And so the only time people heard that term heterozygous, possible heterozygous, was only when people were talking about recessives uh, to the point now, like I said, one of the other times I was on your show that, you know, people, if I say something about being het pastel or het jag, then, you know, people will tell me how stupid I am that I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just crazy. (laughs) Do you... Do you put that on your thing just to fight with these guys? I mean, like, throw it on your table just to have them come up and debate you? I mean, Christ. Yeah, I uh, at shows I don't usually mess with it, but with people that I've had the conversation with before and I hear them still do it, then I do mess with them. <laughs> All right. I even like to say pop jag just to really piss them off. <laughs> I mean, like when it comes with now, this is something that I definitely want to get into is, and this is something a lot bigger, um, a while ago, uh, um, with, um, what the hell, uh, pie ball, uh, ball pythons where the hets had a marker. Uh, I know we talked about this before and I, I want to be like, is that, we, we still call that heterozygous or is that some other form of, uh, trait because it has a physical marker. Yeah. So once again, remember, forget everything else you thought before. And remember, het means one copy. So if you something is a het, it doesn't matter if there's a co- if there's a you know a marker or not. It doesn't matter you know if it's recessive or you know that that doesn't matter. So if, okay, if something has one copy. Now the question of whether you would refer to it as a recessive morph or an incomplete dominant morph for a little while, probably, I don't know, five, six, seven years back, there were people kind of debating that in the ball Python world saying, Hey, you know, most of the time, if it has that pied marker, it ends up being het pied. If I breed a het pied male to a normal female and I get ones with that pied marker, I keep them. And then I breed them. They end up being het. So is it really recessive? Because I can see some expression of that gene. And it bounced back and forth for a while, and and eventually people stopped talking about it. Um, For me, 
by my opinion, which, you know, other people can chime in if they want to, but I mean, if it's not always there, then it's not incomplete dominant. I would still think of it as a recessive. And so piebald, I would still think of it as a recessive because there are some heads that don't have that marker. Okay. So it's not, it's not a hundred percent set in stone there. So, okay. Right. But yeah, right. there... people did that for a while. Okay, cool. I think that's pretty simple. I mean, oh, and I know you already forgot halfway through the question, but come on, Dear man. God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm like trying to trying to make sure I word it correctly and not sound like too much of an asshole, but right. uh, that's impossible. So I'm just going to step on it and we're going to go and I'll ignore whatever go. else is being written about me later. So, yeah, no worries. Okay, cool. All right. I think, uh, I think that, uh, explains that, uh, next we're going to talk. Justin's going to hit on this is, uh, proven out a trait. Um, you know, uh, you get a G, something that pops out, and then all of a sudden you're gonna. Who's that? Are you there, Owen? Did I lose you? Yeah, I'm right here. <laughs> so, oh, I'm, I'm right. I'm right here. Like, I got like a funny uh, Twitch or something. Oh my anyway, god! You know, go on. <laughs> something pops out, and um, you know, uh, you, you want you think it's a new morph. I think people jump the gun real quick with uh, with that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking of a post that was in the Carpet Python <laughs> discussion board uh, maybe a couple weeks ago. Um, same type of thing, you know, it's it dude, it doesn't uh, when, it's not magic. <laughs> well, when this comes up, it's like I, I remember back in the MP days, um, somebody literally just tossed up a Carpet Python that looked like a normal, but it like maybe had a little bit of a different color to it or pattern. And he said he was going to call it the dragon fire morph. And I'm like, what? And he's like, ah, wait till I prove it out. I'm a, it looks funky. I'm going to call it this. Like you're naming it already. And it's a neonate and you haven't even done anything. And it doesn't even look like if it had come out like purple, I'd be like, well, he might have something there, but you know, it didn't look anything like anything like that. And then when people try to explain that to him, he just deleted it and went away. And I'm like, all right, well, whatever. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. And then that, that is always stuck in the back of my head of that. Like, if you were to get it, you got to prove it. That's why I always tell people if I were to get something crazy, I'm going to send it to like Nick and he can do it because I would be too worried I'd kill it and then it would be gone forever. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Either one. <laughs> what do you think about that, Justin? <laughs> Justin, yeah. <laughs> what would I need yeah, to do? I'd I, I think it can be boiled down to a few things why we have such a, a you know a huge amount of confusion with morphs is one people are fame whores they want to be the first one to declare they found something new and they put their flag <laughs> on the top of the mountain and they're cool because they discovered a new morph right right um, also you've got the complication of back you know with the the early days the heydays of the ball python um, morph craze you, you had lots of money tied up in morphs and so you wanted to be able to sell that baby and and do all that kind of stuff as quickly as possible so you could make you know your fifty hundred million dollars off that morph right so um that's that's kind of what what's gotten us into this mess also you know herpers are, are 
or, or herpetoculturalists are, are usually pretty impatient. You know, if a, if a project isn't breeding by the second year, let, get rid of it, you know, move on to the next project and think your, you know, your investment into the next uh, big project. So, you know, all those kind of things um, combine. And then as we've talked about, there's this improper understanding of genetics. And so a lot of people kind of um, get some kind of information and then just run with it. No, you know, just caution to the wind and <laughs> you just say, this is what it is and sell your babies. And as Nick said, you know, that came to, came to bite a lot of people in the butt because they made claims and sold animals for big money that uh, may or may not have uh, been, been right. And so um, also we, we have a, a good, or we're, we're really good at uh, kind of line breeding things, you know, especially if there's a potential morph in there, you just kind of concentrate those, you know, what, what you, what you think is the morph and you try to um, get as many of that as you can. And so you start inbreeding pretty quickly to uh, get more of that morph to, to sell out. And so all these kind of things have, have provided a challenge to us in proving uh, a morph. And, and I guess when I say morph, I think we probably need to better define that as something that is simply inherited, you know, okay. uh, single gene or something that, you know, you can predict uh, reliably with a certain breeding um, that, you know, that trait will be passed on in the offspring. And so, um, you know, all those kind of things together. Uh, so, you know, let's talk about how, how we prove a trait, right? So yeah. first off, you're probably going to need to uh, spend a lot more time with it than most people have. One of my favorite stories in the morph um, craze was the Mojave ball python. The Sutherlands produced this, you know, kind of darker looking thing, Mojaves. They, they were pretty neat looking. Everybody was excited about them. And they started mm-hmm. selling them, I think, for five grand a piece, you know, back in the day. And then all of a sudden they bred two Mojaves together and found out they produced a leucistic snake. And, and they <laughs> went back and tried to tried to change the price after they started selling them at five grand. They, they wanted to try to sell them for a lot more than that, like 20 grand. I can't remember the exact numbers on this, so I'm just kind of basing it off my poor memory. But, um, you know, it, it, the, the Pandora's box was already open. The price right. was 5000 and nobody was going to pay twenty grand to get uh, to get that, and, and that's happened with other morphs as well. Um, so you know, people get really excited, and, and they haven't proven it out, and they haven't done their um, due diligence, and so they didn't understand you know the possibilities with their morph. And so I think in the end, you know, that impatience kind of came back to to bite them, and they actually probably made less money that way than if they would have done it properly. Um, also we, we like, again, we like to take that fame and we want to, we want to uh, keep it for ourselves. And so we don't want anybody else's input. And I think the opposite should be true. If you've got a morph, um, yeah, you can send it to Nick and he'll prove it out for you. But, but I would hope that, (laughs) and I, I know that Nick would probably talk to people like, you know, all all the guys guys, on the podcast and try to try to figure out, you know, based on the information that, um, you know, this is what, what is possible. This is possibly how this is being inherited. And after, you know, a generation or two of, of breeding this morph and, uh, uh, you know, seeing what the, the results of the breeding trials are, um, you can make better uh, decisions on the, the mode of inheritance. 
and kind of understand that a little better. But that takes a lot of work. It takes keeping back a lot of animals, it, you know, right. feeding those animals, housing those animals. And, you know, I agree with you, uh, Owen, that, you know, if we, if we kind of yaster that all to ourselves and keep it all under, <laughs> under our roof, and say, you know, the founder dies or, something, you know, you have a fire and, and it's gone. So, you yeah. know, it might be a good idea to find trusted outlets to um, kind of work together with on, on, the, on the morph. And that kind of leads to the next thing is you want to outbreed. Because, as I mentioned before, if you have kind of that um, inbreeding uh, going on, you, you're, you're concentrating um, homozygosity. If that, uh, so as you breed related animals together – they are they are having less um, options, you know, less alleles to, to to mix and match, and so they're actually just passing on the same alleles after a while. And so you can breed, you can breed and breed, and you kind of fix that trait, um, or you have basically a, a, an animal that's homozygous for different um, genes at, at many many different locations, and so um, or you know the alleles are, are basically the same. So um, if, if you're going to, you know, reduce that, you want to get unrelated individuals. And that's tricky, especially in regards to Australian pythons, where we have a limited gene pool. Um, <laughs> although, you know, some new stuff's been coming out of Europe. And, and so we slowly are getting maybe more uh, genetic diversity. But, but that's difficult, you know, when you've got your line bred um, line from you know the uh, whatever locality you're interested in and then all of a sudden you're thinking oh i've got a morph but i probably ought to read it to this unrelated line to to try to prove this out because uh you can uh you know especially if you're looking at a polygenic trait and mistaking it for a simply inherited trait a single gene trait um you know that polygenic uh is kind of masked a little bit by that uh inbreeding the the homozygosity and so you know, it looks like it's a simply inherited thing. And I think a good example of that was the, the tiger uh, coastals. Um, you know, those were kind of line bred for that, that stripe trait. And then as soon as, you know, I, I think the big clutch that did it for me was when Jason Balin bred one of his fantastic striped uh, tigers to an unrelated carpet and got like no stripes. Right. <laughs> so, I remember that. Obviously, if it, if it was a, a uh, incomplete dominant trait, you would have at least seen some uh, striping in the offspring, at least as far as my limited understanding. I, I don't know how I got on this round table. I'm not much of a geneticist. <laughs> I, I like to a little bit. I guess I'm hanging out with Owen tonight. But <laughs> Yeah, I know. Thank anyway. you. God, finally. I have some help. Uh, Eric just pushes me off to the side and go hang with the cool kids. But um, <laughs> so how, I, I think once once you once you've got you know your your data and you've kind of made a preliminary decision on what you think it might be you know what the mode of inheritance might be uh, you know maybe give that name possible in front of it you know this is a possible uh, incomplete dominant trait or it's a possible recessive uh, trait um you know that that uh, i believe is is behaving like this and uh discuss it you know be be just upfront with the information you have so down the line when somebody goes, Oh, you were wrong. I just, you know, I bred it to my animals and I bred them over several generations and I found out you're completely wrong. You can say, well, that's why I said, I think, or it was possible. You know, you don't, you're not making some bold claim and attaching a big price tag to it. So that could come back and bite you in the end. So anyway, um, that's kind of 
some some things to think about. And you know, again, involving people in the know, people who understand genetics very well, and can tell you the proper terms and uh, help you understand how that's being um, being done. There's also you know potential for for uh, analyzing your data statistically. I know Ben did a lot of work with some some different traits that were inherited in ball pythons, and we actually published on that together. And, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, Ben did most work on that. I, I just got to, uh, you know, help out a little here and there. But, uh, and uh, so he has a lot of, uh, a lot of good experience with uh, genetic um, analyses and, and some things that can actually help, help point you in the direction a little, a little better that way too. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Um, cool. How, how long until I know like one of the things with the recessives is they definitely keep compounding them and kind of breeding mother to son and father to daughter. How long until you might see some like bad results? Cause the one thing that comes to mind is that that one year where like everybody's granites were born with like no eyeballs. I mean, is that, could that happen quickly or is that something that can happen? It would take a couple foldings or, you know, breedings back before it that, to come up. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think a lot of those. I mean, we're looking at uh, genetic changes, and and mm. usually genetic changes equal bad things. <laughs> you usually don't have <laughs> genetic changes that equal good things. And so, you know, a lot of times these mutations, um, you know, they might make the pattern look really pretty and and all that kind of thing. But they're you know like with the with the jaguar, it's heterozygous for lethal uh, uh, le- lethal uh, mutation, and so. You know, you might be okay with one copy, but two copies, you're dead. And so, you know, that, that carries along with it, that risk of death. Oh, my gosh, my dogs are going crazy. I hope you can't hear that. <laughs> my, That's my, what that is. My bird we really thought you were torturing people. The, <laughs> <laughs> the bird, I've got a, I've got a, a, a lorikeet that, that likes to tease the dogs anyway. And everybody thinks we're, like, sacrificing dogs in our family. <laughs> Sorry, sorry about that interruption. Uh, um, where where are they? But anyway, the, yeah, these 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 mutations and genetic changes can often result in in bad bad things as well. And so, um, oftentimes, you know, at the front end of a morph project, you'll see these uh, bad results, and that could be to from inbreeding depression and, and things like that. But um, as you outcross, sometimes you can get rid of those things. But a lot of times, um, they're they're part of that genetic mutation. And so um, I, I think it was Ben that was, we were talking about the JAG mutation. And as you have a reduction in melanin, um, neural crest cells migrate with melanin or something to that effect. And so as you're, you're messing up the neurolo- neurology of the, of the snakes as you're reducing their pattern further and further. And so, um, you know, and that's why they're doing loop-de-loops when they're in the cage and stuff. So, uh-huh. um, yeah. No, I didn't cool. think about that. So sometimes you can yeah. read it out, other times you can't, and it's just it is what it is. Sometimes, and you know, it's part of it. Sometimes <laughs> you don't get that pretty gene and <laughs> that pretty appearance, and you have to just go, oh well, you know, what do you do? Yeah, it always seems like the prettier they are, the more jacked up they are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you always know that really beautiful snake in the clutch is going to be the worst feeder, and it's going to be yeah. the one you want to hold back. It's going to not. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder too if it's because we fuss about them too much, and reptiles get stressed, and so we're paying more attention to them, and you can't leave them alone, and so 
you know, then you think, oh, it's because it's pretty. No, it's because you no, keep it's... messing with it and looking at it every five minutes. You know? <laughs> right. Close the damn bin. It's, it's hard fine. not to do. Yeah. 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 Why do we keep the snakes if we're not going to look at them? But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So true. Okay. All right. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, um, no worries. Cool. So <laughs> the next. So, oh, here, here I go again, Owen. Oh, anyway, you are. You're just, just throw I'll, out the, I'll, I'll, throw I'll, out I'm the not album. here. Don't worry about it. Um, no, it's fine. No, continue with the Eric show. Anyway, I'm trying to, um, I'm try, I'm trying to juggle the, the board and the chat and everything all at the same well, time. Then why don't you Come. let me do the list thing? Because it'd be one let. Never mind. Yeah, uh, go we'll ahead. We'll about this later. Uh, next, we're going to have Nick is going to talk about uh, allelic complexes. So, Nick, what the hell are those? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one of those things that, Really, I mean, if you're going to engage in this sort of a hobby, and since the hobby is so, I guess, genetics-oriented, that's such a huge portion of what reptile hobbyists, regardless of what particular species groups they work with, it's just such a big thing that not understanding this would seem to be a real detriment. But despite not being terribly complicated, it, it shocks me when I'm talking to people how many people still don't really kind of, this one seems to elude them. Uh, and all this really means is just a situation where you've got, you can have, you know, at any particular locus, there's going to be several different alleles that you could potentially have. And you can have more than one mutant allele at a given locus, and you end up with this sort of, uh, I wouldn't say synergistic, but uh, a lot of times what makes the mutants look like what we're used to it looking like is not, it's not entirely just the product of the defective gene. It's the absence of having a normally functioning copy of that gene. If you're an albino, uh, I mean, a recessive thing like an albino, you can have one, you, know, you, you can get by with a single fully functioning normal copy at that locus. If you don't have any, the reason you're, you're white instead of black is not because you have two copies of the albino gene. It's really more that you don't have any normally functioning copies at that locus to produce melanin. You're broken on both counts. You can be broken in more than one way. Um, and you see this, I mean, it always, these discussions always lead back to ball pythons on a pretty regular basis because there's, there's so many mutations. There's always a handy analogy that people are familiar with. Right. And you see this in, in uh, ball pythons. There's numerous allelic clades where you've got a whole host of morphs that happen to reside at the exact same address. And, and you combine those. Sometimes they are similar looking things where they produce a similar phenotype, just variations of a, you know, of, of something. And you end up with a, a heteroallelic homozygote when you combine them and you end up, this is why when you breed your Mojave ball pythons to your lesser ball, they're different and their homozygous expressions are different. But when you mix them together, you still get a white snake, weirdly a more white snake in that instance, but different versions of the same sort of mutation. You can also have mutations that are not the same in any appreciable way. In boa constrictors, the motley gene and the hypo gene don't look anything. They're really almost the opposite of each other, yet they are allelic. Um, in carpet pythons, we don't have, we might have one now, kind of, sort of, but that's a kind of a side tangent. But uh, in ball <laughs> pythons, it's, it's, it's well known and understood. It doesn't even have to be, well, Travis mentioned earlier that in ball pythons, the black-headed gene and the spider gene are almost the opposite ends of the same, you know, of the same process. The same—they're just—they're breaking the snake in exactly opposite 
ways, and when you mix them together, you end up almost kind of sort of fixing it. Um, okay. That's really the only example of, of something like that where you have like almost genes that are nearly the opposite of each other uh, having that effect. But uh, whenever, even if you have, you see in other species, you see a lot more than you do in carpet pythons, which is obviously it's kind of my wheelhouse, but you'll see mutations that are allelic that are different. Uh, in ball pythons, if you look at a, a fire, which makes the black-eyed Lucy, uh, and you look at something like a vanilla, which looks kind of like a fire, but the homozygous expression is completely different. It's not white at all. There's no white on it. They're still allelic, and when you mix them together, that animal has two broken copies at that locus, but they're broken in different ways, and you sort of get a freak-out effect. And you end up with this thing that's, it, it, it's, you know, you get a little more unpredictable result. But that's pretty interesting, uh, typically. Uh, but, yeah, just it's just more than one mutation that follow, that are, are at the same location or locus. That's, it literally is that simple. Uh, as time goes on with carpets, you will find there will bound to be more that, uh, that meet that description. Uh, in ball pythons, there's a ton. There's, there's at least there's at least two allelic pairs in boa constrictors. The one of the T positive albinos and the old sharp strain albino boa are allelic. Uh, don't look much alike when you look at them individually, but they live at the same. They reside at the same address, and when you mix them together, you'll produce uh, the sort of intermediate albino between the two. Uh, in carpets, the stonewash gene appears to be kind of, sort of, likely allelic with the hypo, which is not itself. This gets a little more complicated. In the I tried to explain this in words this very carefully when I typed that up the other day, but I was <laughs> by the response and some of the messages. It would it appear that several people's <laughs> brains just melted. Well, I mean, it, this speaks to something that Justin just touched on a minute ago. It's like, and that is like, how do you define a morph? I mean, that's kind of morph is again, not really a technical term. It's kind of a hobby term. And how do you define it? People can define that differently. Right. Do you take the position that it refers to only single gene mutations that are just fat cut and dry? Do you include polygenic stuff? I mean, in carpet pythons, the tiger is clearly not a single gene, though widely believed to be codom for quite a while, mm. not a, not codom, not, not that anything is, not incomplete, not, not even one gene. It's an undetermined number of genes that contribute to make that. Is that not a morph still? It's, it's, it's certainly a phenotype. Uh, it is strongly heritable, but it's not in a neat and tidy single gene sort of manner. Hypo right. in Brettles pythons appears to, by all, account, all evidence so far, and I've been test breeding for eight years now to figure this out, it all, the only thing... Eventually, you eliminate all other possibilities. Really, the only thing that makes any sense is if it's not one gene. It's the only way to explain every breeding and every outcome uh, to date. Um, it appears, though, that it's not a large number of genes. It's likely a small number of genes, just a handful. Because you breed a hypo to a non-hypo, you'll get some animals that literally can pass for a pure, full-blooded hypo. They don't look diluted at all. And then you get some that could literally pass for normal and a lot that are in the middle. If you, would, if you had a large number of genes involved in a polygenic trait, you'd likely, that would have an effect of kind of evening that out and avoiding the extreme highs and lows. If there was 50 genes involved, statistically, you'd never hit any of them that got 50 out of 50, and you'd get none that got zero out of 50. You'd all be in the middle somewhere. 
But if there's only four, you know, one in 16 will hit all four, and one in 16 will hit zero out of four. And that's closer to what we're what what I've seen. As far as the athletic complex thing with that and Stonewash, it appears the most likely scenario, there's two possible scenarios. Uh, the more likely of the two is that the Stonewash gene occurs at the same locus as one of the genes that contributes to make a hypo. Hypo is more than one gene. Just arbitrarily make up a number and say it's four genes. One of the four appears to be allelic with Stonewash. And you oh, get wow. kind of this partial experience. Well, stonewash is, when you compare it to a wild type, it is completely recessive. You can't see the hex. It's, that's very simple. Uh, when you put hypo in there, you can occasionally see, like, a partial expression of the stonewash phenotype, even mm-hmm. though the animals are only heterozygous. And really the only way that the – other, the other explanation would be that you have an epistatic thing happening and uh, you where you basically, like, a, imagine, like, a tug-of-war genetically. And there's, like, they're – they're not the same. They're not at the same place in the tug of war, but they're pulling on the same side. They're pulling it the same direction, and you get kind of a synergistic effect, and you know, and it, it'll pull it that way. You see that. You see a lot of that sort of thing in ball pythons, where genes that you know are not allelic, but when you mix them together, they'll influence each other. Uh, you know, with piebald and any of the leucistic stuff in ball pythons, uh, if you mix it with pied, you end up with striping. If you make a Mojave that's heterified, it'll be striped. A lesser heterified, it'll be striped. A cinnamon that's heterified, because that's kind of the other end of that particular spectrum, it'll you'll see non-allelic genes affecting each other that are you know, downstream, um, and that's what's happening. Or that's you know, I hesitate to even say these things, let alone type them, because a lot of times people we live in a, a culture now that just like reads the first two sentences and maybe the last sentence of a post and doesn't read and skips all the crap in the middle. And then they try to just draw their conclusions from that because they can't <laughs> take the time to read three paragraphs. <laughs> they miss all the stuff that's important. Well, it has a, and, and I mean, some of us, I mean, in the hobby, I recognize, you know, that my role in the hobby now and Justin's and all these other, and all the guests that are on the show today when people say people that are looked at as, you know, sort of an authority on whatever subject say something, even if they preface it by saying, you know, here's kind of best guess and what we're what it looks like and even if it's speculation and obviously so, people have a tendency to take that as though it is more than speculation or more concrete. Well that's you know, that's what it is. It's like so with this you know, with the hypo and the stonewash thing, this is kind of the all evidence suggests this, but don't totally take that to the bank just yet. It is still working on it, but it's, uh, uh, I don't want to see something and get completely locked in. And, you know, <laughs> we're trying <laughs> right. to overcome hmm. some of that, uh, things that have been, you know, and that, and that, uh, I mentioned, you know, kind of having basic scientific literacy and, you know, and being open to new ideas and new evidence and stuff. And that's, that plays a role here as well. It's like, you know, really people, I mean, science is really what? It's just, here's the best conclusion we can come to at this time with the best evidence we can gather at this time. Should mm-hmm. new evidence or better evidence come to light at a later time, you need to revisit that. You can't just say, nope, it's codom, because I thought it was codom 10 years ago. I'm just going to stick with that. It's like new evidence, or not new evidence in this case, but new understanding in terms of a hobby goes, like, you need to fix that stuff. Don't hold on to dogma and outdated ideas that you know to be false just out of some sort of convenience, laziness, or tradition. 
So, like Morelia, like Morelia Spolota, like Morelia Spolota bread lie. Would that be a good example <laughs> oh of that? My god. Oh my god! I don't even that one. That never should have never even me. existed. It's kind of, it didn't ever. The thing is, it never did exist. <laughs> when you look at the original description, Reynolds pythons like. I got people give me a hard time, like, like I promoted them to be a species. Like, I didn't do anything. They were always a species. They were originally named as a species. They have never been at any point, never were a subspecies, ever, never will be a subspecies. There were a few authors in the 90s, early and mid-90s, that just for no scientific reason that I can understand, just decided they liked the idea of being a subspecies because just carpet snakes. Based on absolutely nothing. And they just wrote that, and it just stuck. In some people's minds. Same with Imbricata. Imbricata, Mm -hmm. Same with Imbricata. Always was a species, always will be a species. Like you can keep saying Spilota Imbricata if you want, but at some point you start looking silly. Right. (laughs) Just, you know, if you're, I just, I don't know. I think we, as a hobby, I mean, in all this, we're speaking to a hobby audience here. Uh, I mean, you got some pretty weighty academic guests on, but I mean, we're speaking to a hobbyist audience and it's, it's just we, we should all as a hobby strive to be as accurate and as informed as we can. And to not, to just keep calling things IJs and co dominant is just it's just it, I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't service our hobby well or it doesn't I don't know, we can we should do better, strive to do better than that. And I guess that's largely the the point of this show is to uh, you know get on the right page. You know, <laughs> some things are not Hold some things are not really Debatable. Something. There are things that are opinions, and there are things that are facts, and it's like the facts are the facts, and you know, just accept those and, and move on. This is not mm-hmm. recessive. Codominant isn't a thing. Like, move on. Syrian giant doesn't exist. It's not a place <laughs> with calling your snakes Syrian giant carpet. It doesn't. It's not a thing. It's not a real thing. It was literally Syrian giant was literally a not a place. By the time people started using that to refer to those carpet pythons, it was already not a place. It was a, that, ter- that province of Indonesia ceased to exist before those snakes got imported. Because it was already out of date when they started. It's just, <laughs> somebody looked at an old map, Irian Giants. Like, so what are the ones on the other side of the border that aren't in the, weren't in the old Irian Giant? It's, no. I mean, it's just, it's madness. It's like, quit calling them that. It's, it's, I don't know. I, I'm a grumpy old man. That don't listen to me. <laughs> don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to be that. You kids get off my lawn. You know, I'm the fat guy now. Young kids. Me too. <laughs> Little oh, bastards. I feel it too. All right. Still got so much more to go to. Got to move on to the next one. I know. All right, next we're talking with uh, Warren is going to talk about parthogenesis. And this is a new one for me, and I'm probably going to butcher this. Androgenesis? Sounds right to me, but I have no idea. Maybe maybe parthos from the female and andros from the male. I don't know. Let's let's actually ask Warren and see what's up. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of trying to throw a jello at a wall. Yeah, right? Oh, man. You there, hey guys, Warren? am I there? Hey, yes, yeah. sir. Good stuff. I'm. Uh, I got a set of these uh, Bose Quiet Comfort headphones a couple of weeks ago, and I'm still trying to get used to them. So it's kind of nice that I can not fry my eardrums with the uh, iPhone. So good, smart. <laughs> All right, excellent. <laughs> Very good. 
Yeah, so you um, you basically had the parthenogenesis and androgenesis um, answer right there. Um, I'll get oh, on wow. to the androgenesis oh, later shit. on. Yeah, there you go. We're not that dumb, Owen. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. <laughs> he was quickly uh, Wikipedia searching androgenesis. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, what I'll do is um, I'll talk about parthenogenesis first, and then I'll come back to androgenesis. And why that's nice is that it relates to Nick's kind of um, statement, you know, we are always learning, right? We're always, mm-hmm. you know, when, when new data comes online, we can change our opinions. And, um, and stuff that Nick talked about in the past, I think, is now explained by androgenesis. So he and I can probably have a fist fight um, on the phone <laughs> uh, over this year. But it'll be great. Awesome. So, awesome. <laughs> So parthenogenesis, um, one of the, as, as scientists, as biologists, we're really often looking for model systems to study, you know, big questions in biology, right? And, uh, and, and for many years, those model systems have related to, you know, uh, mice, to fruit flies, those kind of easily reared animals in the lab. But whenever questions like parthenogenesis come online, especially in vertebrates, it makes it very difficult at least originally, to, to find a model system in which you could study it, and for many reasons. One was that it was considered some kind of you know evolutionary accident, some kind of fluke. It meant very little. Um, but we're now seeing it reported more and more. Um, so we see it in birds, we see it in sharks, we see it in varanid lizards like Komodo dragons. But in snakes, in the last you know ten years, the number of instances have, have been that have been reported have increased dramatically. So it was first reported in in birds, for example, in the late 1900s, um, and, and, and in the 19 I think it was 1970s, 1960s. There was a whole program on parthenogenesis in in turkeys. They, they believe it or not, turkeys and chickens actually produced a decent number of parthenogens, depending on the line. But then that kind of went away. And then in the 1990s, we had some uh, we had two key publications came out. One by Gordon Shewitt. So you're aware of. Um, the Shewitt line carpet pythons, um, Gordon and his brothers uh, were involved with those and rainbow boas and hog island boas. Uh, mm-hmm. But Gordon's also a professor at the time, and um, and he reported parthenogenesis in a couple of different snake species, mainly pit vipers and, and garter snakes. And mm-hmm. uh, at the same time, a paper came out on, on Acrocordus, which are these file snakes. And... Um, uh, and then it kind of disappeared until 2004, whenever a paper came out on parthenogenesis in um, in uh, Burmese pythons. And then again, it went quiet. And then, just out of the blue, kind of, I, I was a postdoctoral researcher at the time at North Carolina, uh, North Carolina State, and and I got a an email or a phone call. It was actually a phone call asking if I could do a paternity test on a uh, on a boa constrictor, and it turned out to be parthenogenesis. And from there, that that went worldwide in terms of the media response. And as a result of that, I got bombarded by other people saying, I've had this weird thing happen with my ball pythons, reticulated pythons, and so on. And mm-hmm. since then, we've published you know, a decent number of papers on parthenogenesis and snakes. So it, it turns out that snakes are great models to study parthenogenesis. And we can rear them in the lab, and we can do a lot of different things with them. So it's kind of fun. And it's widespread. We see it in the boas and the pythons, and we see it right through to the cobras, uh, the pit vipers, the file snakes, the, the rat snakes, and so on. Hmm. So we've got you know new work coming out on king cobras. Uh, we've got new work coming out on on fertile and stuff like that there. Jesus. So it's remarkably widespread. And 
to the point that it's so common in boas and pythons, in ball pythons, that I've stopped testing for it for people. I used to, you know, take in samples and test it and prove it or disprove it for, for people for free. And it's just so I'm, I'm being bombarded so much by that um, that I've just stopped doing it. And I'm actually just going to refer them to, uh, to Ben uh, in future. And he'll obviously <laughs> pay me uh, some money for that, right? So uh, we'll, we'll work out some deal. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so what is parthenogenesis? Very, very simply, it's the production of an asexual offspring. Um, and uh, a male can be with a female, or a male might not be with a female. So there's a lot of uh, confusion at that point. People often think, well, a male bred this female and produced this clutch or this litter of offspring, so they can't be parthenogens, and that's not true. Uh, and I'll get back to that later on. How it, what it results from is something that we are still working on. Um, there's mechanisms that are believed to occur, uh, and some of the new work that we're doing kind of questions some of those mechanisms, but broadly... Uh, what happens is the um, the egg or the ova, whenever that's produced, it's produced with three other um, cells with it. And these cells don't go on to become eggs. They're called polar bodies. And two of those polar bodies are comprised of chromosomes that are almost identical to that within the egg. There's some variation, but not a lot. And what will happen is one of those will fuse with the egg, and that makes it believe it was fertilized. And it goes through... Um, um, cell division and then may produce an offspring from it but what that means is because of that sharing that that set of chromosomes almost identically with this polar body uh, it means that the offspring are highly homozygous so incredibly inbred and we talked about it on the show um, a couple of months ago about the, the problems with inbreeding yeah. um, and what we'll find is that many parthenogens are just useless as soon as they're born uh, we see this really commonly in the advanced snakes, so the cobras, the pit vipers, and so on. Um, they often don't don't survive. Um, they die before birth, or else they're born with hideous deformities. And uh, you can see some images of that in some of my publications. I think a review paper I published a couple of years ago, but you can find that on my website and read it. Um, but um, in boas and pythons, remarkably, they, they seem to... To, to be born relatively healthy or, or hatch relatively healthy. We, we find some issues sometimes here and there, some kinking, some eye issues, some teal kind of like, um, like a little kind of pigtail type thing. But the animals often survive. And uh, what we'll find is that over the course of generally two years, that often sets the scene of what's going to happen with the parthenogen. Uh, many of them die very, very early on. They just don't take off. Others hit about two years old and then just turn to crap and they, um, and they just die. They, it's almost as if they keep eating, but it's almost as if they stop metabolizing food and they just waste wow. away. So I've got a freezer in my lab that is just filled with snakes that are parthenogens, uh, boas and pythons. But we have some that make it through that. And, and, they, and my oldest parthenogen that just died uh, a year ago was eight years old. And it was actually the, the, the boa that I... Um, maybe it's yeah, eight or nine years old. It was the boa that I reported being uh, one of the parthenogens from that first biology letters paper that I published in 2010. And she did great. She actually reproduced, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but then she just went downhill from there. She never seemed to recover from that, from that birth, and it was just a very odd pregnancy. Um, so a key point about that is that they're highly homozygous. They're not completely homozygous. Okay. Um, 
So they retain some level of heterozygosity, and we're working on that there at the moment at the whole genome level of the of the snakes. It's turning out to be a lot more complex than we thought it ever was. Um, and I'll probably talk about that at another time because it's just unusual. But the take-home message is highly homozygous, and therefore there's problems associated with that, highly inbred. Um, what we find is that in boas and pythons, they always produce female parthenogens. They don't produce males. And the reason okay. for that is that up until about a year ago, um, we believed that boas and pythons had ZZ and ZW sex chromosomes. And in a paper that we published last year, uh, we showed that that wasn't the case, that boas and pythons are actually XX and XY sex chromosomes, just like humans. And that means that the female is XX, and therefore if she's contributing a chromosome, it's only going to fuse with another X chromosome, so it can only produce a female. Um, it might not be the case in Dumerils. There's a recent paper in Dumerils, Boas, that suggests that they might be ZW, um, but we don't have any instances of parthenogenesis in Dumerils yet that we can report on. But um, without doing a full kind of phylogenetic study on sex chromosomes in snakes, we'll never really know. But certainly uh, we can see that X, X, XY sex chromosomes are, are present within uh, ball pythons, Burmese pythons, uh, and, and Boas at the moment. And then as you move into the advanced snakes, Again, the cobras, the pit vipers, and so on, they switch to ZZ, ZW, which means that they produce male parthenogens and not female parthenogens. Mm. Um, so, you know, one of the things that relates to is the level of heterozygosity that, they, that, that is then in those parthenogens, you know, because I mentioned they're largely homozygous. Right. So in the past, what we used to use were markers known as microsatellites, and we'd use a small number of these microsatellite markers um, you know, maybe up to 15, sometimes 20 markers to determine whether an animal was a parthenogen or not. Sometimes it was, it was maybe as few as six or seven. Um, and very often we would see that they were all homozygous. The problem is that when we go back and we actually sequence the entire genome of these snakes, or at least a very large proportion of the genome, we find that heterozygosity is conserved um, in certain regions of the genome, and it's non-randomly conserved, which is very interesting. And what that does is that it eliminates certain mechanisms. It eliminates, um, for example, the sex chromosomes, the egg simply duplicating itself. If, that simply, if the egg simply duplicated itself, it would be completely homozygous. So we can see there's some variation existing within parthenogens. Um, and that is likely linked then to the variation in survival that we see in these parthenogens. Some of them have a certain amount of variation that might allow them to survive and some of them don't. But this, the, generally what we're finding is that um, they all have about um, f between 5 and 15% of their genome is heterozygous, which is a fair amount. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. So we're, we're yeah. working on that at the moment. Um, yeah. It's, it's, so that, what that means is that there's, there's a caveat with that that means that, you know, I get a lot of emails from people asking if I can test an animal if it's a parthenogen or not. And we can using microsatellite markers, and we can get, right, you know, it's, it's homozygous at, at 20 markers. But what happens if you use five or six markers and you find one of those markers is heterozygous? Does that mean that it's not a parthenogen? Or does that, and therefore it's just a highly inbred animal? Or does that mean it's a parthenogen and that, that heterozygous marker is actually just due to recombination and therefore what we might expect? So you've got to be really careful in actually designating what a parthenogen is or not without actually doing a lot more genomic analyses on these things. They're, they're turning out to be a lot more complex than we would have thought in the past. 
Um, so with that then, you know, where that leads to is, is kind of right. Talk about survival and some of them survive. And mm-hmm. if they do survive, and this is probably the most common question I get. Um, and it's, will my parthenogen survive? And importantly, will it breed? Because obviously when you own a snake, the only reason you own a snake is because you want it to breed, right? Well, that's obvious. Yeah. I mean, right. Okay, that's, that's the way it works. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, that's kind of the most common thing I get from mainly from ball python breeders and boa breeders. And the answer is they can. And uh, we, uh, we um, produced a litter from boa constrictor, from a parthen genetic boa um, two or three years ago. And I bred that, that parthen genetic female to a sexually produced male and produced a, uh, a litter of offspring. There was nine offspring. The problem okay. with this is that the, the whole gestation was just weird. You know, I've been breeding boas for 23 years. I, I, I've produced, I don't know, maybe 100 litters of boas. And the one with the parthenogen was the most unusual one that I've seen. The female sat primarily at the cold end. Uh, the gestation lasted many weeks longer than a standard gestation. You know, after post-ovulation shed, we normally see birth. Mm-hmm. In the boas that I've been working with, between 95 days and 104 days, this female went, I think, over 130. Um, and she was enormous. And when she gave birth, it looked like a real struggle. And she dropped out nine uh, offspring, five of which were dead. Okay. Uh, and, and four of which were, were alive. And those four, sorry, four were dead and five were alive. Those five that were produced that were, that were alive are alive and healthy. Okay. And what's what's great about them is we have subjected those to um, almost full genome analyses, and we find that they have got higher levels of heterozygosity than than what we would tend to see. So we see very high levels. We see a, a recovery of heterozygosity. So those animals, there should be absolutely zero problems with them. And they're three years old now. They thrive. We're, we're expecting to start trying to do breeding trials with those next year. Awesome. Um, the cool. problem is that the parthenogen that produced those then died and she yeah. never recovered from that, from that pregnancy. She just went downhill. Uh, and that was a problem, you know? Um, we also had a, uh, a ball Python, uh, parthenogen. This is interesting. This is a, two animals were sent to me from a breeder in England. Um, mm-hmm. there's an albino ball Python that was bred to a, a tri-stripe and produced an albino ball Python. And I tested that genetically and it was a parthenogen. That parthenogen then was raised up and it produced a clutch of eggs after being bred by a male, but those offspring that resulted were also parthenogens. So this is second generation parthenogenesis. Wow. Um, I I then bred that female this year to a a different sexual male and she produced sexual offspring. But just like with the boa, just like with the boa, the whole gestation was weird. Instead of giving birth, you know, 28 days or so after post-ovulation shed, she gave birth 19 days, and therefore oh. the eggs were not fully calcified. She had six eggs. Um, four of them were infertile. Two of them had really weak veins, and one of them survived and hatched and produced a male double head, albino clown. So I'm raising that up as well to see what, what, we, can, what we can do with that. So they can reproduce. Oh, and, and then um, about six weeks after that, the female died. No, oh, Jesus. So again, she never recovered. She never went back onto food, and uh, yeah, it was a real problem. So I think there's there's not enough um, there's not enough cases of, of parthenogens producing right now that we can turn around and say is this a common issue in, in terms of dying after reproducing. But two for two so far, but wasn't pythons they've died. Hmm. 
Uh, and the proximities no, Warren, are fine. Oh, sorry, the, the, sorry, the sexuals are fine after that. Warren, did you? Did, I know we talked about it when you were on the last time. Um, if there was a clutch that is parthenogen, um, will the male or what would have been the male embryos, will they just die off and not hatch, and then only the females will come out, or am I getting that um, sideways? No, I, yeah, you're you're right, um, and it's kind of odd. That, oh, sorry, that, that was that. Sorry, with um, the the boas and the pythons, there are no male uh, parthenogenetic right. embryos. They're all, they're all because girls, the right. female only has X chromosomes, and therefore she can't produce an XY from only two. Right. Eggs. Um, in the advanced snakes, which are ZW, the females are ZW, mm-hmm. males are ZZ. They only produce males, so they're producing males that are ZZ. Uh, the females would be WW, uh, which would be an unusual form, sometimes known as a super female. They never survive, so they die um, okay. during uh, either either uh, very early on or else um, they just don't even develop. And it's very likely because of the sex chromosomes at that stage. In the advanced, in the boas and pythons, the sex chromosomes are you can't tell them apart in terms of size. Um, whereas in the uh, in the advanced snakes the W chromosome is highly reduced and therefore it's very unlikely that that highly reduced W chromosome can actually form a viable offspring from having two of those. Okay. So we don't see female offsprings in the advanced snakes. We never will see a male offspring in the, in the, in the, in the boas and the pythons with the exception of potentially do myrtles boas. Yeah, that's a good question. Hmm. Cool. And then, uh, I suppose there are some kind of common misconceptions that we see, um, one of the biggest ones is that the offspring are not clones of the mother. They are half clones of the mother um, because it's an egg which has got one set of chromosomes fusing with a set of chromosomes that are almost identical to it. So therefore, it's not having the full genetic uh, comp- composition of, of, the, of the female's chromosomes, uh, the chromosome pairs. So therefore, the, the offspring are, are better described as being half clones of the mother, which is why we see um, animals that are heterozygous producing either homozygous offspring, which would be homozygous visual. So, for example, say it was a, um, a jaguar, right? Um, they produce parthenogenetically. It would either produce super jags and therefore all white snakes that die, or else it would produce um, all normals, right? Because it would be homozygous normal or homozygous um, jaguar. Uh, you're not going to get heterozygous. And, and it's very unlikely that you ever will get heterozygous unless there just happens to be one of those instances where that little region where that gene is, is um, recombined at some point. It's very, very unlikely. So um, whenever I see um, posts on Facebook or get emails um, about their, their pastel ball or their spider ball or whatever being a parthenogen, I can instantly knock it down and say, you know, it's not a parthenogen. I don't even need to test it. I will not take your money. You know, it's uh, it's it's a uh, it's not a parthenogen. So that's one common misconception. Another one is the actual mechanism. So there was a YouTube video posted a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago by Parthenogenesis, um, in which the presenter described the mechanism as being a thing called gynogenesis. Gynogenesis mm-hmm. is where the sperm actually, the head of the sperm interacts with the gel coat of the egg, um, but it doesn't penetrate it. It just basically stimulates the egg to become parthenogenetic. Uh, we know that that's not the case in boas and python, in any of the snakes that we work with, because um, uh, 99 times out of 100, in our instances, males have not even been involved, and have never huh. the females have never been exposed to a male. Um, 
it, that happens, that mechanism is, is real and it happens in some hybrid uh, or in some um, uh, species where the male, the female will mate with a male, very often a male of a closely related species and that, that sperm will stimulate um, the egg to produce parthenogenetically, genetically, but it's not what we're seeing in boas. So it's not, if people call it gynogenesis, that's, um, that's incorrect. Um, and I suppose that, you know, I don't know if you've got any other questions on parthenogenesis because I could then talk about um, androgenesis. Sure, go ahead. Sure. And that's, go for it. If, if parthenogenesis screws your head up a little bit, androgenesis <laughs> really screws your head oh, up. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I know. And we haven't published this work yet, but we're going we're gonna to be publishing it soon. All right. So this is where Nick will probably, if he was present, would probably punch me in the face. Um, and given that he exercises way too much, it will probably hurt a lot. So a number of years ago, um, a number of years ago, Nick um, talked about um, null mutations. So you would find an offspring in a clutch or a litter that had the phenotype of a male, but not the phenotype of the female. So breeding, for example, a granite to a normal and producing a granite offspring. Um, and, the explanation of that, if I remember correctly, was it was a null mutation where um, the female, egg, the egg from that female lacked that specific gene. And therefore, whenever that gene, that chromosome aligned and there was the complementary gene that should have been present, but in this case, it was the jag or the granite gene, the, off, the offspring looked homozygous granite. Okay. And that made a lot of sense. It was a great example. The problem with that was we started seeing this a lot you know, I was getting emails a lot from people across the world where it was happening in boas and pythons and so on. And I just thought, you know, with something like that, that's, that happens at a very low frequency, like an ultra low frequency. You know, you, you look for it in, again, model organisms like Drosophila or mice, and we just don't see that kind of thing very often. Uh, and certainly not in the frequency that we see it in snakes. So um, for a couple of those examples, I, I sequenced the genome of, of the mother, the father, some of the offspring in the litter and also, or clutch and also that the unusual animal. And uh, the weird thing that came out was that it had the, the majority of the DNA from that individual was from the father, not the mother. Um, however, the mitochondrial genome was from the mother. So the mitochondria is primarily maternally inherited. That could be another entire story we could talk about. I've got funding to study paternal inheritance of mitochondria, but in snakes, we generally see maternal inheritance of mitochondrial DNA. So therefore the egg had mitochondria, but it did not have a, um, an egg or, or a nucleus or the nucleus was ejected from it. And the only DNA that seemed to be present was that of a male. We're, we're reanalyzing that at the moment because it looks like there was some level of recombination with some maternal DNA, but we're still not sure we need to need to clarify that. But that's an example of the male dictating it's a, essentially a male parthenogen right um so we're working on that more it happens in some organisms but it's incredibly incredibly rare especially in vertebrates um and especially um in instances where it's not actually been induced through pretty complex lab kind of methods and we are actually seeing it in pretty high frequency again just like parthenogenesis something that was thought to be in this really odd weird event that was rare it's certainly not rare at all. And I believe that it's probably being missed much more frequently than people think because um, they're assuming that the only parthenogens that they have are those that have a morph and they see it. Whereas any of the right. wild type animals in those litters can also be parthenogens or androgens. 
So um, we are um, we're playing around with that a lot more at the moment. But it's it's certainly um, a much more plausible um, reason why we see these uh, male phenotype animals being produced from females that are not heterozygous for that trait. Hmm. So we're playing around with that at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's something you know that kind of blew <laughs> my mind, um, and something that's still you know, kind of really difficult to get my head around in terms of, you know, it's pretty complex genetic analyses that we're doing for these. Um, you know, what's great about this topic is that, you know, Eric, you've talked about, um, you've talked about reptile radio in the past. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I talked on reptile radio, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, nine or 10 years, nine years ago, something like that. Eight I, years remember. Ago, about yeah, parth- I remember. About parthenogenesis. And then I was on Nick's show and I was on Vin Russo's show and then reptile apartment. And the great thing about it is that, we're, we're still getting so much more information being generated on an almost monthly basis that's allowing us to really develop that whole system and, and hopefully educate many people along the way. So here's I know Ben had a question that he wants to jump in, but real quick, like what what is the what is the thought behind why this happens? Like why does this happen yeah. in nature? Is it just because of like these island species? Is that the the thought that they raft over. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, so that's something that we've had interest in looking at. Uh, mm-hmm. We uh, we published the first paper, and there's only I think only two papers on the topic of of naturally occurring parthenogens in the wild, facultative parthenogen or parthenogens, where the offspring mm-hmm. are half clones of the, of the mother. And that is a paper that we published on copperheads and cottonmouths in uh, 2012. And then a friend of mine published a paper um, on free-ranging, free-living um, parthenogenetic uh, saw, so what was it small-tooth sawfish. Um, okay. They are, the, the small-tooth sawfish population is incredibly small. Um, and uh, it's likely that, and, and this fits in with what my belief about parthenogenesis is, I believe it's a heritable trait. Um, and there's some early work on chickens that might suggest that also, a single gene that's involved. Um, hmm. But in that small population that's undergoing some level of inbreeding, you get an increased likelihood that you're going to get a homozygous for parthenogen, essentially a certain gene to produce a parthenogenetic offspring. Um, in the copperhead and cottonmouth example, the copperheads were in a island population in the sense that they were in a city park uh, in Connecticut, um, a very stressed population, northern range species, uh, northern end of the range very long winters and hibernation, a very short period of time where they're actually active. Um, but there was a 50-50 sex ratio. And this kind of goes against the idea of, well, maybe a female will produce parthen genetically if there are no males present. In that population, males were certainly present. The only difference about that female was she was she was smaller than, than the other ones that we'd seen. Um, and then um, we also saw it in, in cottonmouths, and that population was a 50-50 sex ratio, a really healthy population. So you know, it's a, it's a really good question. We've we've looked at, at data for boas on islands where we might see it there. For uh, I've, I've contacted people about data on Komodo dragons uh, on on Komodo uh, uh, okay. on, the, on their island. Sorry, and again, we don't see the we don't see parthenogens there. So I think it might huh. go against. It kind of goes against that you know idea that well that it's a isolated female and she'll just produce parthen genetically. I I don't believe that they have that ability. I think okay. there's some other mechanism driving it, and I th- that's why I believe it's a heritable trait. And that's why if the population is small, such as being on an island, 
if if breeding occurs, it's likely to be inbreeding, and that therefore exposes that that trait um, in a homozygous form. Okay. But that said, you know, it's um, it, it 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 does what it should do, right? You know, in the example of the boa constrictors that I talked about, it produced a litter of offspring, and while four of them were dead, five of them were survived, and that was mm-hmm. uh, three males and two females. And if you breed those together, you should be able to get a small funding population to play with. So gotcha. theoretically, the evolutionary implications are there to, for 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 a beneficial trait. It's certainly not a detrimental trait, and therefore should be something that's lost, which is why we see the same mechanisms in birds, sharks, veranded lizards, and snakes. Right. Okay. Ben, did you have that question? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll answer your question, Warren. Yeah, if you're sending people our way, I'm sure we can find a way to get some money to you. I was joking. Don't worry. <laughs> I, will, I will. I will. You can, you can buy me a, a beer at Tinley or something, but I will. Uh, I'll, I'll happily send people your way. Um, so yeah, my question to you—that's really cool. About really interesting about that five to ten percent of the genome that remains heterozygous. Um, did you see that in androgens and parthenogens, or just the parthos? So, um, in the rough analysis that we've done the androgens, we've seen what appears to be recombination. And we need to go back and do a lot more work on those. But uh, okay. in the parthenogens, we see it. And, and the cool thing in the parthenogens is that it's not random. We see this non-random, um, non-random generation of heterozygosity across the genome. So, therefore, yeah, and was- it's in certain regions and not in others. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. That makes it extra weird and interesting. Yeah, and it's, if you know anything about parthenogenesis, it's not where you might predict it is. It should be. I'll leave that at that. You know. <laughs> yeah. Very, really I can't weird. Ask, can't ask my next Go question ahead. about what genes are there, huh? What genes are there? Uh, with what we've looked at, nothing important. Certainly, in, huh. in the in the parthenogens that we've looked at, nothing stands out as being. You know, something that you would think, wow, wow, this makes sense, right? It makes sense as being, you know, something that we should see. Uh, What we're going to do, we just had a paper on what parthenogenesis does to venom in snakes. So we looked at parthenogenesis, we looked at the venom composition, the the genomics of venom um, from from a copperhead parthenogen, and we found that that venom was essentially no different than its sexually produced mother. So there's arguments that we could produce there for uh, what's causing that. One could be that the venom genes are retained in a heterozygous form. Um, there's other answers, but you know we we haven't done the we haven't uh, sequenced the genomes enough to be able to isolate or to identify those reasons. Yeah, but we're we're doing it. The, the 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 thing about this is that this is this is hobby research for me. This is stuff that I do at the weekends and in the evenings and with undergraduate students and. We pick a pull of money here and there. We we don't we haven't applied for grants for it or anything like that. There, it's just kind of, you know, just doing it for the sake of doing it because it's fun. Yeah, well, I'm glad. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, that that recombination, that heterozygosity, all of that genomic or that genetic information came from the mom, though, right? There's never anything from the dad. Yeah, nothing from the dad. The androgen seems to be the weird one at the moment, but we need to look back into that there and actually make sure that those SNPs actually align with the father's uh, genome and they're not uh, something different. So we'll we'll do a little bit more work on that there, but certainly with the parthenogens, it's 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 all maternal. 
So with using microsats, uh, even if you don't get homozygous, if you can show it's only coming from the mom and not from any male that was with her, you'd still be able yeah. to conclude it's Yeah, that, that's that's yeah. a good way to do it. And therefore, it just means that you, you might need to increase the number of markers that you use. If you can yeah. if you can eliminate the male very quickly, that's great, you know. And you might be able to do that with four or five markers. It might take 25 markers. It all depends. The problem with boas and ball pythons, which I mentioned before, is the ones that we've worked with, and we've worked with hundreds of boas and ball pythons here in, in terms of microsatellite work, we find a lot of them are highly inbred, and therefore it takes a little bit more exclusionary power, some more markers to be able to fully eliminate a male from being a sire or not. Um, yeah. but, but because you see heterozygosity, does it, doesn't mean that it's not a parthenogen. You just see highly reduced levels of heterozygosity. Very cool. Well, that's awesome. Thanks. Awesome. Um, so cool. I know we're supposed to bring, like we're having the combination Travis. of everybody now. Yeah, we're going to bring, tra- we're going to get rid of Ben for a minute and we're going to grab Travis. <laughs> Warren's going to hang out with us. So okay. um, we're going to co-parent. Yeah, you're going to co-parent yeah, right. with us. Yeah, <laughs> co-parent. Yeah, Eric and I co-parent. Um, so, and we're going to talk about uh, environmental versus heritable size. Oh, I did read that right. <clears throat> okay. We're going to talk about that. So, You go ahead, Travis. I'll, I'll sit here and grumble right. and, then, and then chirp in. <laughs> and then jump in. Just when sit there and grumble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this kind of stems off of a question that Eric brought up, which I guess came about by way of uh, some of the stuff that Garrett was talking about with uh, dwarf and super dwarf pythons and such. Okay. Yes. Um, so I don't know like the full details of it, but you know, Garrett hits a lot, but Garrett is also coming at it from a pure hobby standpoint. So when we look at it from a genetic standpoint, there's really, well, it's a lot more complicated than Garrett puts it out to be. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, I I work well with analogies because, you know, again, I find that's a way that people can understand it a little bit better. So mm-hmm. what dwarfism is, is really variable. In some cases, it's purely an environmental condition. Um, in other cases, it's absolutely a genetic condition. So as an analogy from this, we can think of it like skin pigment. So there's a difference between somebody who has really dark skin pigment because they have a tan versus somebody who say you know is of African descent and has dark skin pigment because they have genes that code for higher degrees of melanin Mm -hmm. now if you take that person who has a dark suntan and stick them in a cave for a month they're going to lose that tan Uh, It's the same way if you take a snake that's on an island that has limited food supply and it's just stunted in its growth and then you bring it into captivity and you feed it, you know, a rat a week, what you say is a dwarf just because of the environmental conditions is suddenly going to turn into a 12-foot animal and it's not really a dwarf. Versus, you know, if you take that same, you know, African descent person and stick them in a cave for a month, they're going to come out and they're still going to be dark skinned because that's in their genes. 
so we have to be real careful about what we're saying when we're talking about what is and isn't dwarfism in our animals. And testing uh, that is difficult. Yes. Testing that can be difficult because a good example of that is dwarfism in boa constrictors. Mm-hmm. So we see a lot of island populations are, are considered dwarfs. Um, however, when we bring those into captivity, some remain dwarfs no matter how much we feed them, and many of them are not dwarfs. So hog island boas, for example, are not dwarfs. They they will if you feed them like a Colombian boa the way we, the way not we the way many overfeed their boas they will grow to be um, you know they can be seven or eight foot boas, uh, whereas something like a crawl k, or uh, you know one of those smaller kind of uh, um, island boas uh, they retain their dwarfism. So there is a genetic form there versus an environmental form. <clears throat> hmm. Okay. Hmm. But there's no real way to be able to tell what, you know, without raising them, without raising right. them. You know, this is this is why again in science we often talk about these common garden experiments where you'll get these things and you raise them in a common garden where they're getting fed the same amount or subjected to the same environmental conditions and therefore what you should be able to do at that point is tease out what is genetic and what is environmental and people don't really do that with snakes right right <clears throat> and the problem also is that you know if we want to if we want to muddy the waters any further we can say then well you know what happens if you do have a snake that is a that is a genetic dwarf and you breed it to an animal that is not well right. without understanding the, her- the the pattern of inheritance and how that how that pans out is a heterozygote a dwarf, or is it is it um, reduced in size, or not? And and then if you've got your fifty percent dwarf, uh, whatever, and you then breed that to something else, and you make twenty five percent to seventy five percent, well, it's also possible that you're losing that dwarfism as well. So my opinion has always been that once you go past one generation, you might as well just throw dwarfism or whatever other kind of trait like that just out the window. If you can't visualize it immediately upon it exiting the egg, then there's a problem there. So when it comes to like, because that's probably like one of the main questions I'm asked with snakes that I've sold to customers is how big will it get? And they always want to know how big the parents are. So being completely captivity, talking two different people, raising like i could raise a sibling of this animal and they could turn out different sizes or whatever that's completely based off of their environment size wise for these guys right yeah well if it's not a if it's not a hair yeah size if it's if we're eliminating dwarfism stuff from it size can be environmentally driven just like you can have two kids you can have twins and you can just feed the crap out of one of them and produce this fat, obese monster, and the <laughs> other one's fed normally, you know. And it's the same kind of thing, right? It's just, it's just, it's the environmental condition under which it was raised. So right. um, I get that question a lot as well because I, I primarily breed Central American boas, and Central American mm-hmm. boas that I've got are tend tend to be those of the smaller varieties. But I've had some that have popped out and, and just been large, you know. But I'll tell them this is the size of the parent. This is my feeding regime. And and this is what we end up with, you know. Mhm. Huh. So it's uh it's it, it's uh it's a uh, I'm just I'm just laughing at that uh, that comment from <laughs> Justin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. 
it's, you know, it's 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 just uh, it's one of those things that kind of bugs me whenever I see percentage super dwarf, percentage dwarf, whatever. You know, it's just like whenever I see IJ, sorry, Owen, or just <laughs> like when I see, I, I, don't, I don't care do about your example. <laughs> you know, you know, or the t- or using the term. <laughs> How, how do you say it, Owen? Is it you don't say xanthic, you say xanthic, xanthic, whatever. Xanthic. I can't, I can't freaking pronounce things sometimes, and I just Ex- yes. If I sit there like and pause, medication. if if I sit here and I pause, exanthic. Yeah, no, I just it's I'm from Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area. I say water. All right, I'm sorry. So move on. Oh man. <laughs> uh, going touching back on that percentage of dwarfism thing. Um, so there's also like a bigger question here of what exactly is a dwarf and what we're calling a dwarf. And quite frankly, what we're calling dwarf isn't really a dwarf. It's uh, it's probably more prob- more appropriately called a pygmy or a pygmoid. Um, so like dwarfism, if you look at it in humans, is a single gene single trait. So um, uh, Game of Thrones is a great way to give the example. Um, what's the, Peter Dinklage. He's a dwarf. That's a single right. gene that gives him that phenotype. But if you look at um, the pygmy tribes out of like the Congo and stuff, now the adult males in those tribes are a <laughs> approximately the same height as Peter Dinklage's, you know, about four foot ten. But they are the result of an environmental pressure that has pushed them into a much shorter stature so that they can live in the environment that they're in. <laughs> and um you know, that's a lot of times the true island dwarfisms that we see is the same type of thing. It's a genetic trait that has been pushed upon them, but it's a polygenetic trait. So, okay. you know, these animals that are truly multi-gene pygmoid are, you know, they're polygenetic. They're like the pygmy tribes that we see in Africa. And if you're breeding those out, you know, to get your 50% dwarf, well, you're diluting those genes down. So it's, you know, it goes back to when we were talking about, you know, uh, Balin breeding his tigers out. You know, it looked like a trait, it looked like a trait, it looked like a trait. And then all of a sudden he bred it to something unrelated and, well, where did it all go? You know, they still carried the genes for tiger, but you lost that phenotype because they were swapped out all of a sudden by new traits. And it happens the same way with these pygmy and these dwarf-type animals. Um, Again, going back to analogies, if you use the skin tone analogy, if you have, you know, if you take two people and one of them is a white person and one of them is an African-American person – their kids have got pigment that's like halfway in between them. Mm-hmm. So they're halfway mm-hmm. pigmented. And in the hobby, we'd say that they're 50% pigmented. If, you know, and now in the hobby, you take those 50%ers and you breed them together, you would still call all of their offspring, offspring 50%ers. 
But if you did that in real life, what you would find is you breed those 250 percenters, and in terms of the pigment, the pigmentation curve is wide. They're not all going to be exactly identical for their offspring. You know, theoretically, mm-hmm. there's a way that you could get an offspring from 50% pigment pairing that are fully pigmented and some that aren't. Now, depending on the number of genes in there, it could be a really, really tiny statistical chance, but it's still there. Hmm. So, the... <laughs> oh, my God. God, Warren. Yeah. Um, who let so him when we're, when we're getting into that, you know, the amount of, you know, what is truly pygmy or what is truly dwarf blood or super dwarf blood, you have to account for what you're really looking at is how much of the genetic payload for that dwarfism is being carried across. And, you know, yeah, selecting for animals that are consistently smaller out of those pairings is likely preserving the genes that push towards the smaller stature the mm-hmm. same way, you know, if you select for continually darker animals, you're going to get more melanistic looking animals. If you consistently select for striped animals, you're going to end up with tiger striped animals. Right. But, you know, if you just grab two 50% animals and throw them together and just keep throwing them together randomly, you could still get, you know, a 10, 12, 15 foot snake out of it, because if you're not selectively looking to maintain those pure genes, Mm. then you lose it all. Are we pretty much saying that kind of a lot of the dwarf uh, stuff now, because it's been so spread out that it's almost, it almost seems almost like a gimmick to me (laughs) to try to sell retics to people who may not be comfortable with a full size retake <laughs> I, I, I mean are we kind of getting there I mean it's what I kind of oh, oh and you went right on, for the junk I, I, I agree with you call a spade with spade I mean Jesus I Christ. totally agree with you once you get into these low percentages yeah, you know I have real issues with it because people are, are, are often buying that on the assumption because of the word dwarf being in it Yes, and therefore they think it's it's twenty five percent dwarf. It's got to it's going to be small. That's complete nonsense because that twenty five percent dwarf theoretically also has a high probability of losing of not having that gene if it's heritable and gen, sorry and genetic in relation to size. And therefore that could result in a you know whatever large sized retake Burmese python whatever we're talking about it could result in a non dwarf animal. And I think that's just like. Um, you know, the use of codom, just like um, the exanthic issue and so on, it's a misconception. And it's something that right. the general snake public need to start, you know, thinking about the real underlying things here. You know, they, they just can't, um, they can't just assume it's got dwarf, it's got to be dwarf. You know, how many right. people, well, what's funny about it is, what if we turn around and said, this is a uh, 12.5% um, head albino. How many of people would turn around and say, oh, wow, shit, I'm going to buy that there? You know, they'd say, they'd say 12.5%? Screw that. I'm not buying that. But yeah. on the other hand, if they say, well, it's a 12.5%, you know, super dwarf, whatever, they're like, oh, well, you know, it's a 12.5% super dwarf. You know, and therefore they think that, therefore, that there's a, it's, it's going to be small. 
like they're they're yeah, taking but, a foot off know, for every percentage. <clears throat> it's like that's not necessarily yeah. true. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. You know. Well, in my opinion, know, on that going fifty percent. <clears throat> if it's not ahead, worse, then. Sorry, if it's not fifty percent from a direct genetic line of dwarfism to a normal to to a standard non-dwarf, where we know that the heterozygote, the the offspring from that result in a smaller animal, then we might as well just throw the dwarfism out of the table, you know, off the table. Right. In my opinion. Yeah. Otherwise, after that, it's just pure speculation, right? It's just saying, well, we did breed two super dwarf or two, you know, fifty percent super dwarfs together. Of course, what that means is that you could produce 25% super dwarfs from that there, from those offspring, right? You could also have a lot that are not super dwarfs and so on. So, again, general misconception about genetics, um, which is not a great thing. Yeah. And, you know, like if we're just going to shoot from the hip for random numbers for giggles' sake, you know, <laughs> if we call super dwarf a polygenetic trait mm-hmm. and say that there's seven incomplete dominant genes involved, okay, then – your your fifty percent super dwarfs, then you know if you breed those together, your <clears throat> unit square is a hundred and twenty eight by a hundred and twenty eight grid, with sixteen thousand plus possible genetic combinations out of it. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, and you know, <clears throat> sorry, pun it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to let it you go. Got me, Warren. <laughs> but anyway, I can't talk so, either. So, yeah. out of those 16,000 possibilities, you know, how are you going to be able to catch the ones that have more of the dwarfism genes versus less of the dwarfism genes? You know, you're you're starting to play a huge game of crapshoot that's Jeez. just ridiculous and stupid. Wow. Right. So well, the best way the to retic, do it is now the retic yeah. world hates us. All right. Well, okay. the retic world's going to hate me. Yeah. You know. So the best <laughs> way to do it, just like Warren said, you take you take those fifty percenters, and then breed them back to a known genetic super dwarf animal, and that way at least you know you're back purifying into the known genes that are there, and you're not playing random dice with anything else. God. So. Here, I don't know if I'm going to phrase this question right, and they're probably going to crucify me in the R chat. But it's just happening. Yeah. So with the dwarf firm, that's a separate species, right? And is that considered something different than what we say is a dwarf retic? Meaning that uh, if if you just bred obviously retic guys are breeding morphs into the super dwarf so you can get a really fancy looking snake in a small package type of deal. If you're just breeding those, I guess they're subspecies at this point, possibly full species would, would they be considered a, uh, a true dwarf at that point? Does that make sense? Well, I, I don't know if I'm asking the question the right. They're not dwarfs anymore. Right. But if you kept them, if you like, if you were breeding, say, locality type retics that were considered dwarfs, would that stay a dwarf and then therefore be a genetic trait? Or if I mean, because some of you guys were saying that if it, it's more of uh, you know the environment that could be affecting that, you know, how how would you figure that out? I guess is what I'm. Well, it can be. It, it depends. Oh, like Warren said, it can be. Okay. 
with 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 dwarf berms, uh, uh, what we know about dwarf berms, they are a dwarf, mm-hmm. um, and therefore, um, but they're also a different species, right? Or a subspecies. Um, so therefore, whenever you cross them, you're doing you're producing an integrate. Um, with right. with retics and the and the islands that are true genetic dwarfs, um, we don't really know the true phylogenetic relationships of reticulated pythons yet. So right. we could have different. We could it's very possible that many of those island forms that are dwarfs are actually full species or subspecies. Right. <clears throat> sure. So we, we don't really, you know, we don't understand that at the moment. And also we don't know which ones of those islands are uh, environmentally driven uh, dwarfism or, or actual genetic uh, dwarfism. And again, the only okay. way to understand that is to bring them into captivity and to raise them up in these common kind of common garden experiments and that's what we do right the way we raise our animals are pretty much common garden experiments right they're they're all at a certain temperature mm. you know a certain feeding regime and so on so we we see pretty quickly which ones are true are true dwarfs we see within the first couple of years what's going to happen <clears throat> if we have non-dwarfs to compare it to so if mm-hmm. we're going to take the time and raise up several of each and say well we you know, weighing them monthly and so on, we see dramatic differences in size and so on. You know, then we can we can attribute at that point it being a heritable trait. The issue is, as was brought up, is it a polygenetic trait or is it is it a simple recessive, you know, sing, single gene trait? We don't know. Gotcha. Again, more work okay. required on that kind of thing. Gotcha. <clears throat> okay. It's a really cool topic, you know, and it's one that it spans everything. You know, we see it in ball pythons. Sorry, not we. I hate seeing we because while I've got a bunch of ball pythons, I will happily give them to people if they give me the right money. I'll them all <laughs> I would like them to, I would like them to go. Yeah. Yeah. Even though, even though they've done great things for genetics in snakes and terrible things for genetics in snakes. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's the Sahara ones or whatever, the really large females. Is that a, uh, an environmentally driven thing or is that a, is that a heritable trait? People are buying them, believing them to be heritable. So, um, you know, we see it in ball pythons. We see it in boas based on the island forms and the mainland forms. We see it in reticulated pythons. We see it in uh, <clears throat> Burmese pythons. We see it in green tree pythons, you know. So it's mm-hmm. size variation is something that's, that's real across most of the species that we actually keep. Just understanding what is environmentally driven and what is heritable um, mm-hmm. is still uh, very questionable. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. All right, so <clears throat> I guess we'll just go into the uh, the last topic we had, um, and this is basically Ben, Warren, and Travis sequencing what is possible and what is realistic. I don't know who wants to take the lead with that one. Yeah, please God. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I'll I will sit back and then I'll grumble some I'll more. Comment. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll let it. I'll let it Horn's permit a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah cause, you know we do a lot. Of, we do a lot of this kind of stuff, so it's 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 um it's important. Well, you know, maybe I should comment first, right? It's important <laughs> to people to realize that <clears throat> I've, I've let it ferment long enough. Uh, it, it's important for people to realize that we can't simply turn around at the moment and say your animal is het for X, right, from a shed skin. The reason being is that. You know, people believe that we have this genome of every snake that, we, that we're playing with, and we know exactly on that genome where these genes fall, where these traits fall, and therefore we can simply test for that trait. I've had it before, you know, I've crossed this five-gene ball python with a seven-gene ball python. Is my animal X, Y, Z, whatever? 
and I can tell them it could be, but I, you know, genetically we've got no idea because we don't know where those genes are on on the genome uh, of these of these organisms. Um, to do that would be horrendously expensive. Um, what we can do, um, and this generally keeps people quiet very quickly, is uh, I'll get an email and say someone will say, right, I've got a, you know, a pretty hot trait in an animal. Say, you know, I got it last year. I, you know, somebody had a um, sunset ball python that, that I, I think at that time were pretty expensive. And uh, and they said if I if I breed these, how do I know which ones are are possible heads and which ones are heads? And I said, well, we can do it. Um, we can put the work in just as we did to be able to determine um, sex differentiation, sex chromosomes in, in, in the snakes that we did earlier on. Um, we can do the same amount of work, but it's costly. Um, it's not a simple process of all of a sudden we, we produce this marker for the sunset gene. It will cost, you know, upwards of ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. And hopefully we'll find the marker that identifies that location on the genome that is associated with that that trait. And I don't know many people that are willing to invest that amount of money in a single gene. And that's one gene. That's not the whole list of, of traits that we have available in these snakes. <clears throat> the likelihood that we hit on that just randomly um, using other markers like microsatellites is extremely slim. So therefore, uh, and I, I've been hit up with this for the last eight years, and I, I get it on an almost weekly basis or, or more, you know, can you tell me is my animal this or that? And the answer is I, I can't. What I can tell you about your animal is who's the father, you know, who's the mother, whatever in that case, is it a parthenogen or not? Um, I can generate a DNA fingerprint for that animal at different levels of, 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 um, of accuracy. So we can go for a handful of microsatellites. But the problem with that, in my opinion, is that with a high level of inbreeding that we see in many snakes, that um, the likelihood of that genotype that fingerprint being unique for a small number of markers is very slim. Um, or I can go out full extreme and do, you know, a whole genome sequencing and give you a complete DNA fingerprint of your animal. The difference is that one is 25 bucks for me and the other one is, um, you know, about $2,000. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's, uh, there's that kind of level of complexity to it. And, and people just think you can, you can turn around and all of a sudden they'll send me a shed skin and I'll give them this great result. And that's not the case. We're not at that level to be able to do it right now. Mm -hmm. Sorry. That's my rant. <clears throat> that's my rant. Okay. I'll rant, good, a, good, I'll rant a little bit later if I, if I feel I need to. <laughs> okay. okay. It's, a, it's a good rant. And I hear the same thing, you know, can, can you tell me how, if my Python has this and it's, you know, Inevitably, like Warren says, yeah, no, we, 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 we can't do that now. And then they always turn around and say, well, but like I can spend $100 to get my own genome done right now. And, you know, when people say that, I, I feel obligated to point out to them, okay, the Human Genome Project is over 20 years old. So huh. it's taken more than 20 years to get to the point where you have a cheap human genome test. And those tests that you're even sending in for $99, they're not sequencing your whole genome. They're just looking at like a small handful of genes, all things considered. Now, the, the Python genome project is zero years old. <laughs> Nobody has a Python huh. genome project going on. So, right. you know, it's not going to be a $99 project. You know, the technology is in place to do it, sure. You know, Warren mm -hmm. could do it in his lab. I could do it in my lab. 
but it boils down to how much money are you going to give me to do this in my lab? Because it's not, it's not a 99 type of dollar project. Um, you know, I could, I could try and throw some back of envelope together to come up with a full thing. But like Warren said, you're looking, I think Warren was being conservative when he said, you know, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 project. <laughs> I, you know, think closer to a hundred thousand dollar project on, you know, you know, on the end of just trying to get everything knocked out. Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, that's what people need to understand is yes, the technology is there, but just because the technology is there doesn't mean that all of the data and information is there because the body of knowledge that goes into using that technology hasn't been put forward. Okay. Uh, hold on. I have to, Unmute yeah. Warren. The, uh, yeah. When I, <laughs> I, I that's <laughs> you're muting me. My God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what I'll say is that whenever I said ten to fifteen thousand, that's for a single gene. Oh, that's Christ. not for sequencing a genome, right? The sequence of genome, we can actually sequence genomes relatively cheap. It's it's it, the the cost of sequencing genomes is dropping dramatically. So we can sequence genomes to the chromosome level for about $25,000, now $20,000, and get chromosome length reads, um, which is kind of remarkable. That's not the story, but that's, that's all we've got at that point are letters on a page, right? A's, T's, C's, and G's. We don't know where at all on that genome genes fall. And what we can do is we can search those genomes. We can search those letters on those pages to find uh, commonalities with other species where we have genome sequenced and we can say right this bit here that is a gene for whatever right it relates to a certain thing sodium or you know a, a, a certain like a sodium channel trait or something like that there we can, we can say this is where it is the difference is that it's very unlikely that we also then have the, the trait to say and this is piebald and this is lesser platinum and this is granite and this is whatever the color morphs or pattern morphs that as hobbyists we are concerned with. The likelihood of getting that is extremely slim from a genome project, but we can get it from what's known as a, uh, we can use this process called RADSeq, which is what we use for the, for the sex chromosomes. We can sequence, for example, say we, say we wanted to determine, um, is my animal a het pied or is it a, or is it a normal? What, the way we would get that is that we would sequence a bunch of related pieds a bunch of related normals and a bunch of related head pipes. And we're looking for an association of a certain mutation, a certain, do we see the same mutation across all of the pieds and all of the head pieds, but not in the normals. And we might find a single gene, a single, a single trait associated with that. The problem is that you can also find hundreds more genes showing the same kind of pattern same kind of trait so then we have to develop markers and test all of these to find out which one is the one that's associated with pied so it's a time-consuming process it's not a very simple you know i can do this in a week which many people believe it it is it's not that at all and, and people that think that we're anywhere near that or or people that think that we're anywhere near doing that um you know just forget it it's unless you're willing to invest a lot of money you know 15 grand 20 grand and that's not including you know, labor, you know, that's not including the time of a professor or a lab tech or whatever doing that and the analysis involved. That's just getting the sequencing, the number of specimens that, specimens that we need and so on, and the testing done. 
you know, it's, it's a huge amount of work. So people ask me, well, why don't you do it? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And then you want to give me 20 bucks to test it. How many yeah. tests am I going to need to do to recoup $20,000? You know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, what am I going to do a thousand tests at 20 bucks to just recoup the amount of money that it costs to generate that test? I don't think that's going to happen even no. with the hardest trait, you know? So, you know, my opinion right now is people just need to take that idea and throw it out the window and forget about it. You know, we're just, we're just not there. And I, would, gotcha. I wish we were. I would, you know, I'd love to develop a, a business based on that there. You know, from my lab, it would be a nice way of generating extra income. Like we're going to, what we're planning to do in January is, is, is develop sex uh, markers for blue tongue skinks, for green tree pythons, for diamond pythons, stuff like that. The, the hard to sex animals that have got some kind of value in the hobby. And we'll mm-hmm. do that. And we'll, we'll be able to sell tests for 25 bucks or whatever per, per animal, but not for, is it a het, this or that? You know, we're not doing that. It's not valuable. Gotcha. It's not viable. Gotcha. Ben? Yeah, hey. so uh, I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate. First of all, I will say, though, definitely people should have in their mind that this isn't going to happen anytime soon. But uh, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I think I'm a little more optimistic. Um, I, I remember reading they found albino in, I think it was a corn snake. So that gives a little bit of a place to start to at least find one gene, maybe in some other animals. Um, you know, maybe it'll be something completely different in pythons and boas, but that at least gives you somewhere to look. Um, and there there has been some um, some Burmese python genome sequencing, so... Uh, I'm sure there's lots more work to do on it. It's nothing near as good uh, for my full-time job. I work on the pig genome, and there's a lot of things that we can't do in the pig genome that we can do with mouse and, and human because so much more work has been done on mouse and human. So even pig being a food animal, we have a pig genome, but you know it's you know, it's nowhere near as as good as as these other model organisms. Um, so. You know, there's at least a little bit of a start there, um, but I have not seen anything published on that in several years. So I don't know if they're still working on it. Um, but anyway, so you know, there's there's little bits, and like like has been said, you know, it will take time. Um, what I hope to be able to do is have more and more samples coming in, and and work that that Warren's doing as well. You know, between people working on it. You know, obviously, if we don't put effort into it, then for sure it will never happen. <laughs> but um, yeah. over time, it's something that I would like to make some progress on, and I doubt that it's something that I'll necessarily make my money back on ever, but uh, something that's really interesting to me. Even as a grad student, um, I did literature searches on genes that have to do anything to do with color and pattern in in uh, snakes then i was looking at garter snakes and so it's just one of those things that i'm gonna slowly chip away at over time but but definitely like i said and other people said too it's it's something that you know for sure is not going to be simple it's not going to be fast and it's not going to be cheap <laughs> but um for sure every year like the the NovaSeq, Illumina's new big sequencer, um, you know, its capability of putting out sequence, you know, that's going to be really nice. The other cool thing, and much cheaper, the other cool thing is bioinformatics 
keeps getting better and better and people able to, to do that and new new uh, technology and methods. So, you know, it's it's a long road to hoe for sure. It won't be soon, but it's something I'm going to keep chipping away at. Awesome. Uh, Warren, did you want to jump in there? Sorry, I had to unmute myself. Okay, um, that's fine. <laughs> it was my fault this time. Yeah, so as far as genome projects going on, there are a number. Um, so a, a very good friend of mine uh, and co-author of mine is involved in, I think, seven or eight different um, snake genomes, Burmese python, king cobra, boa constrictor. And the boa constrictor is the best annotated snake genome we have at present, um, I believe. Um, annotated in terms of understanding what genes are located where. But they are not color or pattern morph genes. Um, garter snake, western rattlesnake, blind snake, Texas blind snake, uh, copperhead, these are all genomes that are underway. And, and the, uh, the western rattlesnake genome is actually at the chromosome level where we have chromosome, or they have chromosome length reads, which is really good. Um, the cost of sequencing genomes is really dramatically dropping. Um, you look at the cost of the human genome, it costs $10 billion. I think it was $10 billion over 10 years. We can now sequence the genome for, you know, as I mentioned, we can, we can sequence the genome for about 25000 that's not the story. Um, that just gives you letters on a page. It's understanding the, the, where the traits lie on those, on those pages, where the traits lie on those genes, or where those genes lie. And that requires additional work. So what we then have to do is additional sequencing, not necessarily whole genome sequencing, but additional sequencing of individuals with specific traits. And it's not just one here and one there. You have to do large sample sizes to be able to eliminate the... Um, the kind of spurious additional mutations that will be popping up on each of those individuals. So it's a lot of work. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, even with traits like albino where we know a gene that's involved, because it's involved in one species doesn't mean that we're going to see the exact same thing in others. And I, I wish I could be optimistic about it. You know, it, it, snakes, you know, they're, they're my hobby, but they're a pretty intense hobby whenever I've got 100 and something of them in, in, at home between my home and my lab. Um, I wish we could go further with it. And I just don't see it at the moment without a really intense amount of investment. So you'll need the biggest ever GoFundMe to start generating the money that's required to uh, to develop these because no scientific foundation is going to give you money to say, right, I want you to go and find where the genes are for piebald, granite, blah, 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 mm-hmm. in carpet pythons. It means nothing to the general public. It's only the hobbyists that will drive that. So if every hobbyist wants to turn around and donate $5 you know, towards a fund that can then be used to identify these traits, that's cool. That's not going to happen. But um, So what the cool thing is, however, is we're getting these snake genomes and we're learning a lot more about the, sna- the evolution of snakes from those snake genomes, which is really cool, You know, aside from whether my snake is a color or a pattern morph of whatever. Um, that, you know, I-, I wish I could be more optimistic there, but... Uh, I can't. I think I had something else I was going to mention there. Maybe I didn't. I'm just trying to look where we... <laughs> uh, oh, yes. Yeah, here's the other one. The other one that I think might, is worthwhile bringing up is, is my snake a pure this or pure that? That right. is probably the second most common... Um, that's probably the second most common uh, question I get. Uh, is this a pure diamond python? Is it a pure boa constrictor? Is it a, is it a, a locality of this or that? And... That's something that we can work on. The problem is that we really need the samples for it. It's not good enough for someone to say, hey, here's my snake. It's a pure line, you know, jungle carpet from the Atherton Tablelands. Unless that animal 
is one that you know has been collected from the Atherton Tablelands, then all you've got is someone saying this snake is something from the Atherton Tablelands, right? So we need solid samples collected in the field with GPS data. And I'm having a huge amount of difficulty with this at the moment, for example, with Corallus blumbergi, you know, one of these odd species of tree boa. Trying to get pure locality animals to be able to compare to other stuff is a nightmare. You know, and we've got people saying, yes, I've got pure Blumbergi, and whenever we, whenever we screen it, it's not pure Blumbergi, you know. They've got yeah. something that they, they either know it's not, or else they don't want to admit it, or else they never knew it. Um, so there's a, a big problem with that, you know. Um, we need to have a really good data set from the wild. And again, that's not something that's common at the moment. It's something that's certainly building up. We're getting great data sets for rattlesnakes, great data set for boas, and but we're not seeing it yet. And we're, getting, we're starting to see data sets for carpet pythons and stuff like that. They are starting to come out. Um, but it's going to be a while before we get the really solid data sets. You know, why, why we've got such good data now for someone turning around saying, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to spit into this cup and they're going to sequence it and tell me my ancestors. You know what? After seeing 15 years of talks on this at genetics meetings, the accuracy of that is becoming really good. And the reason for that is the, the data sets that they have. They've got lots of individuals in lots of cities and lots of towns doing the exact same thing. And therefore, we get regional structure being, being detectable. Um, and like that's something I'm working on in my lab, not with snakes, but with other stuff. You know, we find that people and organisms don't move as much as we think they might move. So therefore, we get regional structure forming and these gen genotypes forming that are common within areas. But unless we have lots of samples, we're not going to detect those. Um, so that's, that's another major question. So where we are right now, if someone turns around and says, is my animal a pure this or pure that, that's not necessarily, in terms of a locality, that's not a necessarily easy thing to do right now, but something that will get much better in the coming years with the right data sets of provenance accurate animals. Rant gotcha. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know if Nick's going to ask the question or he wants up. Nick, am I am I on? Yeah, you are on. I'm, I'm getting confused because <laughs> like uh, everybody everybody listening to this show has no idea that there's this rather at times hysterical side discussion that's going on in private messages. We <laughs> always at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of witty banter and whatnot. But uh, I mean, I mean, it's plus it's just mental masturbation. But uh, <laughs> if you, yes, yeah, I mean. I mean, our experts have gone over the difficulties in identifying the particular, you know, location of a piebald gene, an albino gene, or what have you. While it is not impossible to do that, it's cost prohibitive, and it's not a, it wouldn't be a worthwhile venture for profit, and there's no real research value in it. So it's unlikely to be done. I just bought, the idea just popped into my head. It's like you know, we've got we have jaguar carpets, which is a non-viable white snake, a lethal white mutation. But you've got perfectly viable white mutations, pine mutations, and all manner of goodies and other species that are perfectly viable. And I, my question was, would it be possible, it should theoretically, I would think, be possible using gene editing to just borrow the pie gene by itself from a ball python and insert that into, you know, uh, I told Ben in, the, in our private chat that he needs to get after that and make some pie carpets <laughs> and viable white, white carpets. I mean... Because it should, it would seem to me that should be theoretically, however difficult. I mean, I mean it might could be. It's all pretty hard. So. Yeah. 
I, you know, it's like you want to talk about financial viability. You might be surprised what I pay for a fine carpet. So something like that might be, you know. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, and even if it's the kind of thing, it's not necessarily something that's likely to happen anytime soon. If you look at the things that are commonly being done today, 20 years ago, that was science fiction. And you, you never, I mean, you never believe it. So 20 years from now, what would be possible might be, you know, might be old news by then, that sort of thing. So that was my hmm. question. It was actually more of the private chat sort of question than the on-air question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. No, I like this. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Ben's going to get on that. For, he, ben has assured me he's going to get after that uh, for us. So. Just <laughs> 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 borrow it. I mean, just a, a single allele is all we need. That's, that's, that's it. That's a, no big deal. Just a small just a small ask. Uh, so, so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys want to, if anybody wants to hit on anything on that other topic, but we did have that one question that came in from uh, uh, Fran- Francis, the other buddy. Oh, um, God damn it. About Condros. <laughs> and uh, I got my feelings on this, but uh, <laughs> the question basically goes, why does it seem that the genetics in chondros sometimes miss when you're breeding. Um, I think that could be because they're hybrids, maybe. I, I, that would be my guess. Um, and that's why you see all those <laughs> crazy phenotypes. I don't know. And then his second question, a lot of breeders think genetics skips generations when it comes to breeding animals like Aru's and Rockies. Is the genetics to blame when you don't get as much white as the parents? The hell? Should I read that again? I don't. I don't. No, I. I didn't get it. Please God, somebody tell me they got it because I'm lost. So, so basically, yeah. you're saying why when you're breeding chondros, like, like say you're breeding a blue chondro and you're breeding it, why doesn't it, it always uh, carry over to the uh, offspring? Without knowing the um, genetics of chondros, um, mm-hmm. and should we really call them chondros? Should they not be Morelia? Come on, my guy. Uh, without knowing the, uh, the genetic chondros, uh, good point. They're, they're not IJ, right? <laughs> Damn it! Yeah, right. Uh, without knowing the genetics of green tree pythons, depending on the species. That's better. Um, yeah, there we go. Um, I think there's a lot of questions there. One is, you know, why might the offspring not have as much white as the parent? Well, we don't know what traits are polygenic and which are not, right? So it could be certain polygenic traits. It could be you know, it is what it is. We we just don't know that yet. Again, I don't think we have the level of of understanding of certain traits in green tree pythons as we do in other snakes like ball pythons and blood pythons and so on. Uh, give it time, and I think we will. Um, but I, I think there's a there's a lot of questions that could be asked that, that 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 we just can't address right now. And the fact that I think it's very possible that, um, and Eric mentioned it in the chat that that. Um, I think, or maybe I'm just thinking it, um, that hybridizations potential as no, well. No, I said it out loud. Uh, I said it out loud. <laughs> oh, you said it loud, right? Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, it's all blending into one here. I'm trying to read chats, right. multiple chats in this. Um, right. You know, I think for many years, people considered green tree pythons as a single species. And therefore, yeah. you still see it. You know, um, I haven't got any green tree pythons. I'm a I'm a real Corallus trebo and nut, but I'm really starting to think about green tree pythons. But if I'm going to do it, 
I want locality pure animals. I don't want, you know, Jaipur across Marukis, across Bayak, whatever. You know, I don't want that because, again, you're you're adding levels of complexity to it that that means that if you're trying to to breed for certain traits, it might make it very difficult because there could be a, you know, a single gene trait interacting with a multi, you know, with a polygenic thing and so on. So you're getting a blue stripe or you're getting white speckling and so on. You know, I think there's multiple issues there. I don't think it's, gotcha. I don't necessarily think it's environmentally driven. Um, I think it's more likely to be, a, you know, just a, a polygenic kind of issue. Okay. Yeah. But that's, that's my, that's my uneducated green tree python kind of well, approach. And I, 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 I try to listen to as many of the podcasts from the green tree python radio thing that doesn't seem to be very common anymore, but uh, to try and learn more about green tree pythons um, and heritability and so on. What, what, gotcha. what was he talking about with the question when he said it skips generations? I mean, I don't think the genetics so, can skip a generation. Is he just talking about no, how it doesn't show well, up in the offspring? No, 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 no. <laughs> They're saying sometimes, like, so if you breed, like, again, I'll go back to blue. If you breed a blue animal to a um, a regular green animal, you're, yeah. you don't get blue animals. However, but if you take those two babies and breed them together, yeah. well, duh. I mean, of course. Well, that's just a single, that's just a recessive trait, theoretically, right? Yeah. You'll, right. you'll get a proportion that are blue and a proportion that are, that would be homozygous blue and a proportion that would be heterozygous for yeah. blue and then a proportion that are that are not, that are recessive, homozygous recessive for green. So that, would, that would be, that's kind of a simple explanation for that. And even if it's polygenic, I mean, if I breed my tiger to a non-striped coastal, take those babies, breed them together, I'm going to get a bunch of striped babies. I mean... That's just kind of lays it in there for me. It's, you know, there, and you're just compounding it. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. Travis said he had some to add to that. Go for it, Travis. It. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was basically the same type of stuff that Warren already covered. I mean, there's uh-huh. there's so <laughs> much going on. Yeah. There's so much going on with, you know, that whole cluster of animals i mean you know we know that there's at least two species there you know depending on who you talk to some people are saying that it's upwards of four Mm -hmm. five you know so you're dealing with a bunch of hybrids you're dealing with a bunch of environmental factors you're dealing with polygenetics and you're dealing with that across multiple species so you know you know what gives rise to high white in your Aru type animals may be completely different set of genes than what's given rise to your high white Maroki animals. And so, you know, you, you breed them together and all of a sudden it's like, well, none of these are high white. Well, yeah, no, you just combined a whole bunch of unrelated genes. That doesn't mean you're going to get white. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Right. It could be an environmental response. It could be, you know, we, we don't have enough real knowledge of green trees because, you know, quite frankly, there aren't really a lot of solid Mendelian traits in green trees. We've got albinism and then we've got the, you know, the baby color, (laughs) red versus yellow. Mm -hmm. But everything else in green trees just seems to be an amalgam of polygenetics and random other crap. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of all, it's all blended together. So it's kind of hard to get one result out of it. 
until you start focusing on it. So, all right. Yeah, and, and you know that goes back to Warren's. You know, if we had people who were dealing with exclusively locality type animals, knowing that yeah. they're just dealing with one and one of that only, and not you know seven different components all yeah. thrown into the blender, it makes life a little bit easier to understand these things. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But, and Warren, like, <laughs> like what Warren said, assuming your locality is actually what the hell we're talking about. It, it, yeah. It's a right, and not yeah. just whatever yeah. airport it got shipped yeah. out of. <laughs> AKA Moroki. Yeah. <laughs> Moroki. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, that. Whatever. We've we've had that debate. So yeah, I I can see that I'm being trying very to be challenging. right, Owen. I'm trying to say it's things a, right. You know what I'm saying? What. I, hey, hey, take your IJs and chill, all right? Oh. So, oh. oh. I've ruined the show. <laughs> oh, geez, guys, we failed. I think I need a new co-host. We <laughs> can't fired, follow simple right. directions. Rob, Rob's, 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 Rob's coming on to replace me again. So. Nah. <laughs> nah. Man. <laughs> It's already been going I out. I don't know what the hell I, 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 I don't know. I, tra- hey, tra- Travis, did did anybody ever ask you this question? Um, yeah, he does. He does. It's true, Justin. <laughs> no, stop. We're not going to talk about that. We need him for later. So, um, <laughs> stop reading this. Did thread. anybody ever ask you the question about red and yellow? And and is that genetic? <laughs> um, when they're babies. I, I have been asked it, and most of the time when I give them an answer, I get, you know, they get angry with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, which, let's end know, the show on a bad I want to know it now. There's, I mean, there's, there's, there's drama in every little corner of the hobby. Um, I, I think Nick touched on this before, too, uh, in one of your other shows with him. But, I mean, the most logical thing that makes sense is that yellow is just a recessive trait. Um, okay. If you look at the way okay. – if you look at the way the pattern seems to behave, yellow seems to be the rec- a recessive trait. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess that would And you could sense. prove that out if you followed along with, you know, what Justin was talking about of how to prove out traits. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> So, so do that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I know. I thought Nick would have chimed in on the Condro thing for sure. Oh, damn it. See, I did it again. Damn it. What? <laughs> yeah. Am I even on? I called them Condros. Am I muted? <laughs> no, you're on. No, you're not muted. Yeah, you're on. Oh, I'm on? Oh, I thought I was yeah. muted. I thought I was relegated to the, the, the muted uh, portion. Yeah, no. The Condro thing is one of those, uh, it's almost like it's so obvious that you can't even really fathom that people are still confused by something so simple. And it's <laughs> yellow. Is it's magic. Nick. It is literally, <laughs> it is literally that simple. It, it, and it's why there are still people that, well, I'm sure everybody on this, uh, in this podcast right now can attest to this, but a lot of people, when you give them two options, one of which is a clear, concise, fact-based scientific explanation for a phenomenon, and the other is fairies, unicorns, pixie dust, and magic, they will invariably <laughs> gravitate towards magic and unicorns and stuff because magic is 
magic is sexy. Magic is fun. Sometimes science is just kind of, oh, that wasn't magical. The magical, mystical thing gets you excited. It's a mystery. We don't understand. It's like yellow's receptive, dingling. That's not sexy. That's just so simple. But it's so completely obvious. It's I do not understand how this confuses anybody. I really don't. And it's, I've been saying that for a, a decade. I mean, I'm not a renowned Condra breeder. I've read them a few times, but it's, sometimes it's the only explanation that can make sense. It's like, really, you don't have a lot of other options left. Yellow's recessive. Move on. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, hey Nick, I, is there a super spider? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you go ask the internet about that? Uh, uh, <laughs> I used to feel bad about when, like, newbies are always trying to tell me and put me in my place and tell me how it really is and everything. And then I realized that, oh, my God, you guys get that. If they're doing that to you guys, like, geez, I'm just some, you know, uh, you know, I'm not not, not in, the, in the same academic uh, category as the rest of you guys so it's uh they're gonna argue with you guys i got no hope of making the dent (laughs) (laughs) and you know i used to be very combative and i don't suffer from low self-esteem i'll get in the mix and i used to be very combative and had to feel like i had to convince everybody i was right about all this stuff and in my old age i'm just maybe i'm just beaten down and broken but i'm just like I am way more willing now to let people be completely oblivious and wrong. And yeah, great. No super spider. Must not be one. I guess. Awesome. You know, I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, Next. You can't, it, you can't fix, you can fix ignorance because if people want to know and they want to learn, but you can't fix willful ignorance. Those people are just choosing to remain ignorant and you can't fix that. It just is. And I'm just, yeah. Have, it's taken me a long time to just accept that I cannot convince everybody and I'm just going to have to <laughs> accept this, move on with my life, quit arguing right. with people on the internet. Uh, it's, I'm a lot happier now, too. I think. <laughs> it's all, the big epiphany was a few years ago, and I was arguing with somebody. I think it might have been about the super spider, which is not even something that you can't – I don't know how people can argue that and keep a straight face, really. How, do you just, how can you not know this? Uh, and see this, but they were arguing, and then like somebody tagged Warren in the same thread, and then these same dinglings were arguing with Warren. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> they argue with a guy with the PhD with, a, with an actual geneticist, and they argue Travis the same thing. It's like, Zoom, argue the same. Because they're gonna argue with you guys. They're, I got no hope in hell of cracking that one open. They're just gonna believe what they want to believe, and that's just gonna have to be okay, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it's a true well, story. That's I think that's how We're we not, should end the show. Yeah, it's like <laughs> they're good. We've we've given you all this evidence, but we know we can't force you. So yeah, you can't so. you can't fix everybody. You just reach the people you can reach. There'll be some minds changed, and some people will learn something from the night, and let them take with that. You know, somebody's going to take something positive and be a little smarter for having listened to all this. But you're sure. not going to get to everybody. That's abundantly clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> maybe if we just stay the course and eventually it becomes the norm, then those people will look like knuckleheads, you know? So, yeah. like, yeah. I get, 
<laughs> oh no! Somebody said the name. No, 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 no! Not allowed to say that is a that is a not allowed name on this show. Don't ever say uh, that name out loud. Yeah. Oh, God. oh boy. Oh. Uh, all right. But that's <laughs> all right, Owen. <laughs> it's well, all you, buddy. Uh, well, I mean, where are we at? Because I mean, what I think is what we should do is uh, we're gonna bring everybody on. If you got uh, last comments, concerns something you want to throw out there that's fine by us uh and then we'll let you guys click off and uh slowly whittle it down to myself and holy god don't ever send that picture again what the hell <laughs> i clicked on the wrong link at the wrong time um so let's uh i guess we'll start with um eric you want to start we'll bring uh travis on we'll say uh uh travis you want to throw anything out there uh you know any contact info any last lingering uh, comments you want to toss out there, go ahead, and then uh, we'll let you go for the night. Um, I mean, you can find me on Facebook, Travis Wyman. You can find me on Instagram, A-C-T-C-A-T-T-G-G. Uh, don't have my own website because, you know, I don't do enough to need my own website. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Did you have any last lingering comments or concerns you wanted to toss out there? No, just, you know, like one, I agree that Kodam has to die and die a horrible <laughs> death. And there's obviously a lot of things that need to die and die a horrible death. But, you know, I think I think we've covered most of them. So, <laughs> and tomorrow, tomorrow we'll find out just how many people in the, in the hobby we pissed off. And, you know, right. <laughs> I, I can't wait for Wednesday mornings when I figure out just how, which, which group of the hobby is pissed off at what I've said. So, right. anyways. Travis, thank you for coming on and actually giving the idea for uh, this whole shindig. So, uh, it's been awesome. Yes. It's been a good time. And we'll catch up with you soon. And, um, and we'll let you go. Right. Even though you'll probably be in this thread for the next couple, you know, minutes. What the hell is going on? I mean, Pay attention. God damn it. Is it up? Oh, Jesus man. Christ. Everybody's unmuted, so they just click on. No, you just say their name. Say their name. Travis, Travis, you're good. Nick, uh, is there anything else you wanted to toss out there? Do it now. Uh, yeah, one, uh, websites, one, all that fun stuff. One final thought. I'd just like to leave everybody with a single word. Uh, pigmoid. I, that was, uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason, like the That's inner, the like thirteen-year-old boy in me, just cannot stop giggling at the word pigmoid. I can't stop. I challenge everybody listening to use the word pigmoid in a sentence in conversation, but if you can, it's awesome. Yes, pigmoid. You see, you can't even say it without giggling. I no, it's, it's rare for me to learn a new word. I got a pretty good vocabulary. I don't really hear new words, but that's I'm filing that one away for later use. Big uh, I don't know anybody who listens to the show. Probably I'm easy to find inlandreptile.com. Most of your listeners probably know that, so don't need to belabor the point. But uh, as always, guys, it was great being on. Looking forward yep. to next time. Thanks, Absolutely. Nick. Thanks, that Nick. Was awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I can't breathe. Um, I can't either. 
<laughs> I'm not saying his um, name, but that last one was funny. <laughs> that was good. Um, <laughs> ben, Ben, God damn it, Ben. Um, is there anything else you want to toss out there, real quick, for everybody? Um, <laughs> yes, I will try to speak after I wipe the tears off my face. <laughs> Too bad not everyone. Well, I guess maybe it's probably good that not everyone can see all this stuff, but it is pretty yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I think whatever number of beers Warren needs to get juiced and 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 uh, get his funny pants on, he definitely hit it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, probably the best one right now is Rare Genetics Inc. Um, so we do have some some genetic testing that we're we're offering um, for uh, Python testing. We'll do DNA fingerprinting and parentage testing, and uh, for colubrids, elapids, and vipers, we're doing sex determination from a shed and working on more sex determination tests and other tests as well. And that's the best place to see what we have available right now and and uh, to get updates on what we're working on. Awesome. I got a bag in my freezer I got to send to you. So I'll get on that eventually. So it just keeps getting bigger as I not send it. So whatever. Um, but awesome, Ben. Thank you for coming on. And uh, uh, hopefully you get a bunch of sheds and all that fun stuff coming to you. Yep, I got over 100 at Daytona. People hooked me up there. I missed you, though. Were you on the I know. I thought. Day? I thought I saw you. I was there both days. I thought I saw you, but then I was like in the middle of a conversation, and by the time I came around the corner, you were like you had vanished. So uh, I didn't see you again. So yeah, that's crazy. I was only there for the afternoon on Saturday, but I was all I was there pretty much all day on Sunday. Yeah, I, I was too. So I I guess just missed you, which sucks, but. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely send you that bag of sheds I got hanging out in my freezer because it's taking up a lot of space. So, Very good. Thanks. Awesome, Ben. We'll talk to you soon, okay? All right. Have a good one, Ben. All right. Uh, Justin, quick, I'm going to get you on before Warren keeps typing more things. <laughs> and, and hopefully I can get Eric to breathe. Mute I had to take again. a, you're, you're, I had you're to take a hit of my me. inhaler. <laughs> yes, you did. Is there anything yeah, else you that. wanted to toss out there? Uh, contact info, any lingering thoughts or comments? Uh, I, I think the uh, chat has made this uh, podcast go off the rails a bit. It is gone. Australiandiction.com. Um you know, on Facebook as well, Australian Addiction Reptiles. Uh, yeah, pretty easy to find. Awesome. <laughs> good, good, good times, guys. Good times. Thanks, Justin, and thank you for coming on. And we'll we'll catch up with you a little bit later. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Have a good one, to you guys. <laughs> all right, all right. Put him on because we've got to end the show. <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta get through him, and you're useless. So, Warren, <laughs> hello. He's on. I, I know it's terrible. Um, Warren, do you have any lingering, lingering things you wanted to throw out there? Any contact info? Anything else you want to just ruin Eric with? I mean, 
I do have about a three-hour-long discussion of genetics I could go into, but um, <laughs> go ahead. I mean, but I won't. Here. I won't. <laughs> um, yeah, if, if people want to contact me, um, it's probably best not to do it directly through Facebook, even though I've got a you know Warren Booth Facebook page. I kind of save that for my family, and I'm trying to wean myself away from it. But I do have. But you can't face. You can't message me through it and just ask me questions. I'm just very unlikely to friend you. I think I've got like. You know, forty-two hundred friend requests, and I'm ignoring all of them. Um, and I feel bad because people then probably hate me. So if I see them at Daytona or Tinley, they want to punch me in the balls for not um, responding to them. Um, but you can. I, I do have another one. It's, uh, it's Boa. Uh, what is it? It's Bo- Boa Booth. Um, the play on my last name, obviously, and because I breed boas primarily. Um, so you can you can friend me through that or like it or whatever you do with Facebook and find out what I'm doing. Or you can just simply email me so that the, you can type my name into Google and find hopefully relevant information about me and uh, not a pedophile living in some place, which is actually another guy called Warren Booth, kind of crazy. Um, but you can um, – I'm not that <laughs> I'm not that guy. Um, just type in Warren Booth in University of Tulsa, and my email address is warren-booth at uh, utulsa.edu. And I – I tend to live on email, so I'll respond to you in most cases pretty quickly. And what I will say uh, is that um, if it's an instance of you want to know the parentage of something or you want to know if your bow or your python is a parthenogen, I would recommend you go to to, uh, to Ben um, simply because he can probably do it a lot faster. You know, I, I've got a lot of stuff going on in my lab. If it's a species that I've never tested before, I might be interested in screening that for free. Um, awesome. So. Uh, that's where I would go. But certainly what I'm doing now is any, any cases that I get for people asking about parentage, I'll just pass them straight on to Ben. It's not really what we're doing. But we will be doing, as I mentioned, in January, we will be doing hopefully um, uh, parentage and blue-tongued skinks, uh, green tree pythons, diamond pythons, those hard-to-sex um, animals. So you can contact me about that. Awesome. Over and well, well, yeah, Warren, thank you very much for coming on. and. Uh, <laughs> Bringing, bringing the levity and uh, and all that fun stuff, but uh, had fun. And we'll, it's been a great we'll show. I really enjoyed it. Awesome, dude. And we'll catch up with you. Oh, soon. one one last thing. Go one for last it. Thing. Keep your shed skins out of the freezer. The <laughs> best way to preserve them is dry in envelopes in a dark place. Got it. So we got we have shed skins here that are sixty years old, and we still got great DNA out of them. But in the all freezer, right, cool. whenever you defrost them, they develop bacterial growth. So just a and... just a. Uh, a uh, recommendation. I got you. All right. I'll do that. Cool, guys. Right. Thanks a lot. Re- awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Warren. He can unmute himself now because I think we're done. <laughs> so Thanks a lot. Bye. We'll catch you soon. <sighs> you back. <laughs> Eric. Unmute yourself, damn it. Well, he's ruined it, so um, <laughs> he can't. <laughs> All right, he broke it. All right, so I'll close it out. Um, so what I got for me is you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. There is no website there right now because it's currently under construction. So, but you can go there. Uh, you can also go to facebook.com and look up rogue reptiles, and you can see all the animals that we have currently for sale as well as the breakdown of the breeding season. Uh, current shows coming up. I don't have anything until October Hamburg for Eric. You can go to ebmorelia.com. He is actually going to start selling snakes this year, so you can go there, check out all the stuff that he's going to put up there, uh, and you can also contact him directly. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about the show, you can look up 
MP, Morelia Python Radio on Facebook.com. You can also email us at info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. That is all we have for you guys tonight, so we'll say thank you all for listening. And we're going to catch everybody back here next week. I have no idea who's going to be on, but there will be some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night.